This episode of Burgundy Radio is brought to you by the Lekkonen Legacy Cooperative. They are guaranteed to put the finish in your finish. When you need more than just doing the job, don't settle for the bare minimum. From sweeping away oil slicks to lightning mitigation control, the Lekkonen Legacy Cooperative will ensure that this fin will deliver a championship win. The dedication to do it for Tampa Bay, given they've already won two Stanley Cups. They continue to do it. Conference shot blocked by Hedman. Score! Burakovsky on the follow-up! And game one goes to the Avs in overtime! It's 7-0. Not many more impressive Stanley Cup final performances than this. And Darcy Kimball has his first shot some Kadri inside the circle. Kadri! Where's the puck? How did that not go in? It did. It did go in. It did? It did. We it did! It. He scores! Nazem Kadri! Yeah. The Kadri man can! I didn't see it, but they did! I don't believe it! Kadri into the lineup. He gets the overtime winner! And you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here because this party is over! Now they get tangled up again behind the play. Three on two for the Avalanche. Manson McKinnon back for Manson. Tapped over. Score! It's our Terry Lekkinen! It's a work of art! Lekkinen off the feed from Manson and McKinnon. As tallied and gives the Avalanche a 2-1 lead. Ten seconds now. Four check here from Kale McCarr. It's all the way at the other end of the ice. Four seconds, three seconds, two seconds, one second. It's over! They did it! They did it! The job is done! The Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions! And they will lift Lord Stanley a mile high. And after 21 more years, the Colorado Avalanche are, once again, Stanley Cup champions. Greetings one and all, near and far, reaching your ears wherever you are. Welcome to Burgundy Radio. I am the voice of life, the host of Burgundy Radio. Joining our starting lineup is Earl of Six. Earl! Anything exciting happened to you this week? Just a little. <laughs> also joining our starting lineup is Tiger Vixen. Jackie, how about you? Anything exciting happened this week? I think we can say we are more sober than the team. <laughs> That's probably pretty, pretty accurate. <laughs> When we last graced your digital airwaves, your Western Conference champion Colorado Avalanche were set to appear in the Stanley Cup Final for the first time since the completion of Mission 16W back in 2001. They would face off against the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning with old friend Pierre-Edouard Belmar in tow in a showdown that Kale McCarr rightly declared as a dynasty versus a legacy matchup. Game one at Ball Arena would see the Avs jump out to an early lead in the first period as Gabe Landeskog and Valeri Nechushkin would score just under two minutes apart to give the home team the lead. Landeskog would get his first after sweeping a puck into the goal after a Miko Rantanen shot trickled through lightning goalie Andre Vasilevsky. 
Kale McCarr would make a great play to pressure Nick Paul to give up the puck for the second goal. He would find Nathan McKinnon, who would pass to a wide-open Nachushkin, and he would beat Vasilevsky five-hole. The Lightning would get on the board just past the halfway point of the period as they would get a break on a seemingly harmless, harmless that is, dump in of the puck. The previously mentioned Nick Paul would beat Eric Johnson to the puck in the F zone and brush the puck just enough to beat Darcy Kemper for the goal. The Avs would find themselves on a two-man advantage late in the period, and Mikko Rantanen would get a great pass to Blaniskog from behind the cage, where Arturi Lekanen would deflect the, the uh, shot past Vasilevsky. The Avs would take a one-goal lead into the intermission. The Lightning would make a game out of it just halfway past regulation, as Andre Palat and Mikhail Sergachev would score in under a minute to tie things up. The Palat goal came as both Devon Taves and Kael McCarr would go toe-to-toe with him and Nikita Kucherov in the Avs zone. Kucherov would make a world-class pass to Palat, who had a step on Makar, and he would beat Kemper clean. The Sergachev goal would come from a shot from the blue line through traffic and an inadvertent screen by Darren Helm in front of Kemper. This game would go to overtime, and the Avs were bound to determine to put as much pressure on the Lightning as possible. Thankfully, they didn't have to wait very long. A shot by JT Confer early in the extra session would bounce off of Victor Hedman to Valery Nichushkin, who would find a wide-open Andre Burakovsky and he would fire the puck past Vasilevsky for the game winner. The Avs take game one by a score of 3-2 in overtime for their first victory of the Stanley Cup final. This game definitely feels like it was a long time ago. A lot has happened. It was. <laughs> I wanted to include a little extra detail because it feels like it's been a long time, and a lot has happened in the last few, couple of weeks since then, so... I felt a little refresher was definitely key for this conversation. Yeah, I think there was a lot of exuberance after Gabe and Val scored. And then you have this sort of goofy goal by Paul, which I I, I know a lot of people didn't like it. I, I think that was that was a better play than it, it looked like. Um, <clears throat> so it, it, it made that period competitive. Um, for me, this... The two goals in the second period um, didn't like. I mean, obviously, you know, that's just a, the first goal was a great play between two good players. So got that. But it's just letting uh, letting them come right back and, and get another one in under a minute. Uh, that kind of foreshadowed a little bit of second period struggles that they'd have later on in the series. You mean looking at the shots and analytically, like the Avs were really good in this game, so they should have scored more goals um, before it went to overtime. It's just one of those where finishing wasn't as good, and then, like you mentioned, it was definitely like the mistakes that bit them. Not that you know Tampa didn't do anything to create some of those mistakes, but they were a lot of self-inflicted wounds. And so. And I guess it bears repeating that Tampa is coming off of a a seven game series where the abs have been sitting at home for about five weeks. And yeah, that's part of it. You kind of lose a little bit of the competitive edge or just how hard things are really going to be. Um, yeah, it was man, tough just, to give they up were those... a little not sharp you know, on a few plays, and you know, I, I think 
you know, the Paul goal and the Sergachev goal or part of that sort of collectively. And then giving up two goals in the span of 40 seconds is not ideal. Um, yeah. So in a way, a game that they should have won became kind of like a coin flip. And, but they've been really successful in overtime. What were they, 5-1 and one in overtime in the postseason? And I don't think that was just like coincidence. Like, you know, maybe that's where conditioning comes back into play. And it definitely in the second overtime game that they won, but we'll get to that one. Um, but it, it was good to see Burakovsky uh, get this one. Because, uh, you know, he could be streaky and he knows how to find the back of the net. And he did on this one. So uh, they needed to get one game under their belt. I thought it was cool they won every single game one. So that really helps set the tone. They never trailed in a series. Uh, so getting one is always just starting off on the right foot. And yeah. both teams had one shot in overtime. Darcy Kemper came up with a big save. And then seconds later, we get the sequence that leads to the very fortunate bounce off of the conference shot by a, you know Victor Hedman to find Nishushkin. And Burakovsky's dialed it in right there. Looking back on that play, I remember saying at the time, like, like it was a decent play by Hedman to, to stop Confer, but then he kind of goes somewhere else. Like, we broke off the all over. Now, granted, that's not exactly his guy, but he could have been in the shooting lane. Um, so that was something they're looking at. Like, you know, if he plays like this the whole series, if this one in the bag, didn't turn out that way. But I. You know, the, it was a really good win. I, th I think any of the Avs players would tell you that they were glad to kind of shake the rust off while looking good doing it and earning a win. The Avs outshot the Lightning 38-23 to 23 in that game. They actually held the Lightning completely off the man advantage, and the Avs were able to convert on one of theirs with that two-man advantage. So shaking off the rust is definitely, definitely noticeable, but... Unfortunately, and I don't know if you two would agree with this, as we started seeing after Game 2, which we're going to get to here shortly, the narrative was being thrown out there that Tampa starts out their their series slow, and they kind of gave Vasilevsky a pass for that reason. That, oh, well, he's not on his game because it's early in the season, but he gets better as each series progresses, which... Had been true, yeah. Yeah. But... um. Because yeah, everybody wants to do that, because starting slow is the best. <laughs> well, I mean, we all know how good of a goaltender he is, and I think, you know, it was wise to give them and him credit, but so many people were way too worried about him coming into this series. And if you'd looked at what he had done against the Avs in the past and in, uh, in this season, like, he didn't have great numbers against the Avs as a whole. So he never really like stood on his head and stole a game for them against us. So I, I think probably, and it's easy to say this in hindsight, but when I saw his stats against the abs before this series started, I was like, you know, he's not just going to be unbeatable. Like, 
um, like some people were worried about. Yeah, and this isn't a criticism, but I mean, Vasilevsky is really good at shutting down teams that are predictable and easy to defend. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what you really want out of a really good goaltender. That's kind of a a classic really good goaltender thing is, you know, you win all the games you're supposed to. Um, yeah, like I don't think he lost it for them in, in any way. No. Um, but it's just, it, I think it's, I think it's really hard for a goalie to be a difference maker against a team like the Avs. You just, you're hoping to hold serve um, just because they're, they have so much offensive firepower that, you know, if, if three guys are having a bad night, there's three others that can still kill you. I don't know. And that's just overwhelming for any goalie to deal with. And the point you made about special teams, it, that was also foreshadowed. The Avs did very well on special teams in the postseason as a whole and definitely against Tampa. So um, the concerns we had about the penalty kill never looked that great. After they f- made the adjustment in the Blues series, the penalty kill was really good for the duration. And the power play was good. Sometimes still some frustrating moments, but... I know that they converted at a 30 plus percent clip and that is impressive. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was one surprising thing about the series because I think going into it, you know, the general opinion would be that um, we're going to, we're going to beat this team five on five and, and hope we just sort of hold serve as far as special teams. And it, it kind of was the other way around. Which is I fun. Think- oh, we like unexpected <laughs> things, you know. I, mean, <laughs> I think St. Louis and Edmonton had a better power play than Tampa. Yeah. So it was kind of like once the Avs got through those tests, then Tampa's power play wasn't as scary, I guess, as it could have been, even with the talent they have. But their power play never really looked that good. They were forcing a lot of things and we know what that looks like (laughs) we know how to defend that (laughs) and and talking about special teams as a whole i mean i don't think i would have guessed that tampa would draw more power plays than the abs would in in a series like this and you know again that was the case so i guess that's I I, i think when you look at everything that happened special teams-wise, there were there were a lot of surprises in this series. I guess that's where maybe people would interject bias or the refs trying to even it up too much. Or do you think Tampa was legitimately doing something to draw more penalties? It certainly couldn't I, have I mean, come from any cryptic post-game comments from a certain lightning head coach. <laughs> but... We're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. I mean, if you look where the differential comes from, like they had two more power plays in their blowout game. Um, and then they had two more in the game where the apps really didn't show up in game five, um, which you might kind of expect in an elimination game. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to try to bury the underdog. Um, but I, I mean, 
it's just it's three penalties over a six game series. It's not a huge differential, but you know, just in general, we're used to the Avs drawing more than they take. So I mean that that was fairly interesting for me. Speaking of blowing out the underdog, that leads us to game two. That was a fun one. Oh. <laughs> That game truly was the greatest 60-minute ass-kicking I've ever seen. <laughs> Usually when a team goes up by that much, it it's just so natural to sit back. And I don't even think it's sitting back. It's just at that point you, you're running the clock and you're trying to end the game. And the other team's just trying to get something going in garbage time that they could point at and say, oh, look, we, we found a little bit of a spark. But it is so hard to play that way for an entire game, and they managed to do it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the first two games as a whole, I mean, as I've stopped them by a million, they were the first on puck. I mean, it, it was so dominant. And I remember, you know, listening to uh, the post-game shows and things like that, and Everyone's just like, I, I can't even imagine how Tampa's going to win a game in the series. And, um, you know, when you see a game where you win 7 nothing in the Stanley Cup Finals, I mean, that's just, wow. And it reflected it, too. It really did. And I know after game one, it was like, that wasn't our best, but we made it a coin flip game. We got it to overtime. We're, we're going to be fine. We're going to play game two to the best of our abilities. And for whatever reason, they just didn't have it that game. I mean, the abs executed perfectly, but it was just like they could get nothing going. Yeah. I, and then I think some of this goes back to how they uh, dealt with coming to Denver uh, after their series. Like they got, they got to Denver instead of the day before the game, they got there two days before. Right, which so I said right away for like a week. By then, they probably were exhausted. Right, and that <clears throat> you know, generally, and hockey is different than bike racing. But the you know, sort of the mantra when you're training for a bike race at altitude is, is you want to train at altitude but sleep down low, which means you know you want to avoid uh, sort of the poor recovery you get when you're not acclimated to altitude which the Avs were because they had been at home for almost two weeks. Um, and then so the extra two-day break before this game. Right. There's two days in between um, the first and second game instead of the usual one. Um, so that just led to a lot of a, a lot of problems that you can see coming uh, for Tampa in this game as far as conditioning. This game was absolutely just a sight to behold. It was nothing short of surgical, as we've already touched on. I mean, it's hard to improve upon perfection, but it really was a 60-minute ass-kicking, as Jackie was so eloquently put. <laughs> the Avs routinely pinned the lightning in their own zone to the point of relative ease, ease that is, uh, as the game went on. They defeat the lightning 7-0, take a two-game series lead, Goals would come off the sticks of Valeri Nichushkin on the power play, Josh Manson and Andre Burakoski in the first period alone, Nichushkin again, and Darren Helm in the second. 
and things got interesting there in the third with uh, just about five minutes left to play near the uh, lightning blue line. We had a little bit of a extracurricular session go on with a few guys. So double minors went out for roughing for Anthony Sorelli, Steven Samkos, Air Taranek, and Alex Killer in the Lightning. And on the Avs side, went to Valerie Tushkin, Terry Lackett, and Darren Helm, and Jack Johnson, who for some reason ended up getting the uh, extra minor for the unsportsmanlike conduct to give the Lightning a power play. <laughs> yeah, that part was pretty dumb. Um, I hate to see this kind of stuff. It, it happened in the Edmonton series. Just the mad because bad and you know, you got to send a message or if you can't score, you should be hitting. And I don't know. It's just, it's really dumb. And of course they start going after McCarr and that's why it was funny that he scored those two goals at the end, because even though it was meaningless at that point, it was still just like McCarr getting his revenge. <laughs> yeah. Fine. I'll but just... I love that it was a shorthanded goal and a power play goal. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which yeah, I, and I up guess to that point, it was, or something like that. Up to that point, it was like, "Well, when's McCarr going to show up? Is he going to do anything in the finals?" Blah blah blah. Like, um, I don't know because I know Earl. You probably watched the Canadian feed, and Vlad, you were there, but you know, just Ray Ferrer kept saying it. Like, when's Kale McCarr going to do something? And then, <laughs> then he had the short-handed goal. He's like, "Oh, well, there's Kale McCarr," and um, <laughs> then. Then he scored the other goal, so it was like, okay, you know. He had to have a little bit of a signature moment in one of these finals games, and he did. So that that is kind of what made that third period relevant, because the game was over by that point. Yeah. One thing I really sure. liked about this game is that it, it was, you know, everybody on both teams participated in either the good or the bad. Uh, you know, the up and down the Avs lineup, you had people scoring. It was all all different lines. And you look at Tampa's um, players, and, and they, you know, they had minuses up and down their lineup. So it, it was it, it was not just like sort of, you know, the Avs top sticks taking the crap out of them. It was, you know, full team on team. Each matchup was one. Yeah, and I just think getting that lead in the first period, too, is just, when you get scored on that quick, it's just like, oh, you know, what kind of hole do we have to dig out of? Yeah. <laughs> it was after this when you really started thinking, like, oh, my God, is this team going to win the cup? <laughs> it was hard not to, because for me, I don't know if you agree, you either of you all agree with this, but after this game was over, I felt... Like, this game had serious 90, 1996 Game 2 Cup Final vibes when the Avs destroyed yeah. the Florida Panthers 8-1 in that game. And I was I left Ball Arena feeling the same way. I was like, this... We really could have something here. I wasn't... Yeah, there's, definitely I mean, not, like, you couldn't see Tampa yeah. being competitive in the series. Um, You still had to wonder what it was going to look like when we got to Tampa and... And I think that proved true. But yeah. I felt that way in the Edmonton series, too. Like, starting off with one win, you feel good. You're like, good, you know, we got to win. But it was really when you hit that two-win mark, and I guess especially 
so early on in the series, you really start thinking like, we just got to win two out of the next five. Like that's absolutely something this team could do. You know, you really start thinking you don't want to get ahead of yourself, but, um, you know, at that point, I to me it felt like it was really real. Like I literally got chills when that game was over. So I had to, I had to stop myself from thinking. It's not going to be a sweep. It's not going to be a sweep. It's not going to be a sweep. I know. I was thinking it's po- it was possible. I, I just didn't want to entertain the notion. I was like, this isn't 96 and these aren't the Florida Panthers. They're, they're, there's just, a sweep would just be, uh, nobody would have seen that coming. But after game two, you kind of can't help but possibly dance around that idea. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it, too. It is so difficult to do that, but at that point, they were rolling, and you knew that they were not going to win 7-0 to zero again, but, you know, we, we saw what this team is capable of, and, and um, yeah, it was on the table, at least. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think it's easy, it's easy to go through these two games and, and say, oh, you know, we could sweep them. And they definitely could have. Um, you know, I predicted a five-game series. Um, I did not see sort of the domination that we saw in the first two games. Um, so, I, you know, I did start to entertain that. And, you know, you really do have to wait till the third game. You have to wait till the underdog plays at home and, and just sort of see what they bring um, when they're probably – they're best prepared and in, in, in their best situation. So we did. <laughs> and the Avs had lost a game on the road. Until then. <laughs> uh, so in game two, the Avs outshot the Lightning 30 to 16, held the Lightning to 0 for 3 on the power play, although I guess you'd say. Okay. Kelmacar did score technically on a lightning power play. So uh Yeah, I mean Kemper could have been sitting on top of his net for half that game. <laughs> his first ever shutout, Stanley Cup final. <laughs> but more on Darcy Kemper as we uh, roll along this uh trip down cup final memory lane. Game three would see the, the series shift to Tampa, and the Lightning would turn the tables on the Avalanche at Amelie Arena. Despite not having Andre Burakovsky in the lineup for this one, things were looking good at first. The Avs thought they had gotten the first goal of the game from Valerie Nichushkin early in the period. <laughs> nope, as Earl would say. That goal would be wiped out by a successful offside challenge by Lightning head coach John Cooper. However, with Andre Pilat in the box high sticking Eric Johnson, Abe Linus Gog really would get the abs on the board for real. But two quick goals from Anthony Sorelli and Pilat just under two minutes apart would put the abs down by one for the remainder of the first. Early in the second area, the turnover by Josh Manson would give Nick Paul an opportunity, and he would get a shot on the camera that would squeak through, which put the abs down by two. However, with Ross Golden in the box on a hooking call, Gabe Linus Gog would get his second of the contest, pull the abs back within one. And unfortunately, that's as close as the Avs would get. As goals by Steven Stamkos and Pat Maroon would put the Avs down by three. 
And that would spell the end of the night for Darcy Kemper. Enter Pavel Fransos. And, unfortunately, a delayed game penalty by Nico Sturm would lead to Corey Perry getting a goal pass rank, which would put the Avs down by four, and that's all it would take for the Lightning in this one. Final score from Tampa, Avs 2, Lightning 6, and we have ourselves a series at this juncture. Yeah, this was kind of the everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, it was tough to see the goal get called back. One, it was a great play by everybody. You know, would have liked to see Bo keep the point. He made a great pass to McKinnon. You know, was it offside? Probably, but I also didn't think it was definitive because the way they that never line showed is, the go- they never showed the blue line cam. <laughs> yeah, at least they the, did on TV. The line right there is blurry; like it's not a sharp, yeah, blue line that you can like zoom in on and you can pixelate and you could say this is when it's over. It's very much a gray area, even on close up. And plus, it was bouncing like a little bit. So, so yeah. <clears throat> So at that point, I didn't think it was definitive. Maybe they didn't want to give Tampa the, the power play for an incorrect challenge. I don't know. And then there was also the matter of them getting like 90 seconds or more to decide to challenge, which usually you don't get. So this was truly the first thing that really broke Tampa's way. And like you mentioned, they... The Avs got the first goal anyway. So to me, I don't think them not getting this call is what made the game go south, because it shouldn't have. The Avs got on the board first anyway, but this was another one of just all the bad mistakes came up. I think I remember Benar saying, like, we just did it to ourselves. Like, all of these mistakes um, were just kind of uncharacteristic. And... It all happened, and, you know, when Navs got back within one, you still kind of think, okay, being down one goal isn't that big of a deal because it's just one play, one bounce, whatever. But when they got down by two multiple times, it was just like, this is probably not their night. They're not Edmonton. They're not going to come back, score three goals in the third period. Like, they don't know how to lock it down, and that it just wasn't the Avs' night. Yeah, I, I think the maroon goal. You're just kind of like, okay, <laughs> we're done. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, I want to bring up a point that you mentioned about the review on that goal, Jackie. Is uh, and this was a a phrase that started coming up after Game Six, and we of course won't spoil it, although everybody already knows it happens at this point. But whether uh, that uh, call would go Tampa's way because it it would be given to them because of the benefit of the doubt of being the defending champion. And that was something that was started that started to come up later on in the series, but I'm starting to wonder if that was maybe the case, and especially because of how long it took to start that review process and how long the review actually took. If it was a clear cut, yes, we know this is a definitive offside, then yeah, it's cut and dry and then this uh, decisions is over right away. But that review took a good couple minutes for them to go through 
the various angles to make the determination. And even as you said, it was that view that we ended up getting on the TV broadcast and that ball arena during the watch party, we got all the same views that everybody else got on ESPN that, yeah, it wasn't definitive. It was blurry. So I was confident that this was coming back uh, as a good goal for the abs. I was not expecting it to get overturned. Yeah, I wasn't either. I, I I didn't see enough to overturn a call on the ice. Now, if this was something like the Avs had challenged because, you know, the offside had been called late or something like, or, or whatever. But, you know, if, if this was to give someone a goal that hadn't been called, you could easily say, like, no, nah, that's just not happening. But to, to bring a like goal nobody, back. Like, nobody would have been mad if the whistle had blown. You're like, okay probably offside whatever but um like i said i really think if it was something like the official review and they were just looking at it they probably would have kept it but i think they didn't want to give tampa the penalty it was not only the goal but then the power play on top of it and i do think that that kind of worked in their favor that i do think there's a little bit of Keeping it even bias. I don't think the officials or the league or whatever is trying to game it for one side or the other. But if they ever do sort of put their hand in and sort of ease things certain ways, it's to keep it even. Yeah. And I in totally their mind, giving the abs the goal and then giving the abs the power play was too far in the other direction. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was probably one of those that they wish Cooper hadn't challenged. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> then they should have cut him off. Should have been like thirty seconds. No, bud, we're dropping the puck. Right. I. Yeah. And honestly, I. You know, I, I I'm not sure that would have changed much, um, just because. The things that did happen in the second period, and, and this was the second bad second period of, um, you know, the series. Uh, you just, you know, you had the Manson mistake, and then there's just a, a couple more blown coverages. Um, and I, did, I, I didn't see anything like in the rest of the series that sort of indicated the Avs were were struggling with with having the long change but um you know you look at the goals by period that was the only period they lost they they, they scored seven and gave up eight in the second periods uh, during the series um and it, it just it's counterintuitive because you would think that the better conditioned team the younger team however you want to think of it um would have a little bit of an advantage during the second period Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I guess I hadn't thought about, you know, was Tampa doing anything? I don't think that they made some sort of like miracle adjustment that they made it sound like, oh, you know, they adjusted the abs better because yeah. it wasn't really a series of adjustments. I don't, and the abs didn't certainly didn't win the cup because of adjustments. Like Benner pretty much pick picks his hand and rolls with it, and. There are little tweaks yeah, I mean, here I, and there, but the things that he had to adjust to were were basically all injury related. You know, not having Burkowski, and then 
you know, this was the sort of transition game where they didn't have Berkey and they didn't have Nas. Um, and sure, maybe that so hurt the, a little bit. Yeah, and this, so, you know, you could kind of say, like, this was their worst lineup of the six games, maybe. Um, but, you know, those were the things that, that Bednar had to adjust to. I don't think he felt any need to adjust to Tampa because, I mean, Tampa's a fairly consistent team. They're an older team. They generally play the same way all the time. So, you know, they're, they're not really giving you different looks and they can't, like, play faster. So it is what it is. I feel like in the past the Oz had been a good second period team, but I did look it up at some point in the playoffs, and they definitely were scoring a lot of their goals in the third period. So that is something to kind of chew on is why did some of these second periods get away from them? Because they'd always been so strong in them. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Was it the long change, something else, just coincidence? Um, you look back at you look back at things the Avs struggled with during the playoffs, and there aren't very many. But I think changing was probably one of them. They had a couple goals given up on bad changes, and too many men. Then. Um, yeah, maybe so, they didn't try to sneak in changes too much. Yeah, or it's just it's you know you're you're in the you're in the visiting arena for the first time, so it's loud. And maybe you're having trouble communicating with your players or something. The Avs outshot the Lightning 39-33. Held the Lightning one for six on the power play. Avs went two for four on theirs. And this is the, the only the second game in their entire Stanley Cup playoff run where they surrender six goals. The first coming in game one against the Oilers. Which they won. Which they won. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. a little frustrating to, to lose their first on the road and, you know, lose when you got beat. I don't necessarily think they got blown out, but the score wasn't close. The game was over fairly early on. So I guess you could say, like, the teams traded blowouts. There was an overtime game and the teams traded blowouts. So it did kind it of feel overtime, fairly Overtime, blowout, blowout, overtime, you know? Yeah. It did feel fairly fairly even, but you still felt like the Avs were in a good spot if they could just get another one. And Tampa would be great. I mean, going back to Denver, 2-2 wasn't ideal, but you knew if they could win that game five, they probably still would be okay. So they were still in a decent spot at that point. And they weren't, yeah. you knew they weren't going to make those mistakes again, like or at least that many. And I think in the interest of entertainment, it's kind of better that Tampa got back into the series and, and made it, you know, more of a hill to climb. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, not that the cup is any less sweet when you win it in a sweep over a team that's non-competitive like the Avs did in 1996, but it's, you know, I, I think you wanted to see Tampa's best and, and say you beat that rather than just sort of sweep a team that looked like it was falling off the table. Right. You sure. don't want to see a, a champion that just sleep, you know, sleepwalks their game, their way to a, a, the final and then just doesn't compete against you. It kind of, I want to see it like, yeah, like you said, Earl, it doesn't make it any less sweet, but it kind of makes you feel like something was lacking, perhaps. Well, I right. think overcoming adversity is always satisfying. So you do want to see a little adversity, even though, 
you know, it's frustrating, it's aggravating, and um, but it does make the other team stronger. It, it's not even just about an entertaining product, I think. You need to have the team kind of get pushed and tested a little bit and um, because you don't know. Like, if you just win all the time, you really don't know what's needed. And sure, if they just would have won three great games or four great games and swept and we'd all still be happy, but um, I think you also got to know like what you can do, what your limits are, and, and things like that. Yeah, and I, I think the the losses that they incurred in the Blues series kind of helped them get through these games as well, just because, you know, they did encounter some adversity. They did play, you know, a, a team that was competitive at times, and they had to overcome that. Um, and I think whereas, that was part of the problem. Like in Nashville, they definitely didn't. I think – I was saying this the other day, but I think the Oilers series is going to age a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for, just because you look at it and it's a sweep, and you're just like, oh, you know, Edmonton never had a chance. But that that series, even though it was a sweep, was a lot more competitive than it looks on paper. But you needed those losses that you incurred in St. Louis um, and just I, to well, say, like, like, okay, we can bounce back from this. Like, you know, we've done this um, – so this isn't a, a huge deal. I feel like that was kind of the par- problem last year. I, I do think they fell apart mentally, but they were never tested. Like, they didn't have to overcome adversity. That regular season was just so easy. Swept the blues, and then it was just, like, finally some pushback, and they didn't really know how to handle it. And so this is where, like, the comeback wins and... And definitely the Blues series pushed them. You know, bringing up the Edmonton series, that's a good one because I do still feel like they got fortunate that that was a Western Conference final. Not that it was easy, but, you know, I would even expect moving forward. If the Avs are going to go to the Cup again or win the Cup again, that Western Conference final is going to be a lot more difficult. Yeah, time I mean, will it, tell. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it's... All that surprising that, that, you know, the division championship was a little bit harder than the conference championship just because of the way the Central and the Pacific are set up right now. I guess we'll see. I mean, it's true. We'll see. Like, we haven't experienced that with this setup. And maybe the Pacific will continue to be weaker. And and maybe that Western Conference final won't be as tough. So we'll see. It's, it's, um, and maybe that's the way that this, setup makes it that your division championship is probably going to be a lot tougher than than playing the other conference. Yeah, I mean, when the the Avs were in their dynasty years, basically the the Stanley Cup came down to the Western Conference finals. You know, you you feared your Western Conference final opponent much more than whoever came out of you. Um, So it's, you know... it's just so a, an ebb and a flow thing. So in that way, if that holds true, then then the whole like, oh boy, you couldn't get over the second round kind of thing where it made it sound like the Avs could hardly really even get into the thick of the playoffs. It was like that that's consistently been setting up as a really tough hurdle. Like tougher than you would think. Tougher than just, oh, it's the second series. 
that sometimes yeah, it could be your they've toughest. They've basically been in the Pacific Division for the two years, the two out of the three years <laughs> they lost. So, well, I, I don't mean know what that. To say about that. <laughs> but I mean, well, that year that they played Vegas, that was like Vegas was one of that was the team they barely uh, that was right behind them for the Presidents Trophy. So yeah, so that was. A harder second round series than probably should have been too. Right. I want to talk a little bit more about the because uh, we've we've touched on this a little bit now about the adversity they faced against St. Louis. Both uh, Coach Bednar and a couple of Avs players mentioned this during post game comments and in between game days that they look to that series to inspire them as a, a, a focal point for where they did face that adversity and they did overcome it. So they really viewed those games where they faced those challenges against the Blues as their measuring stick to see how well they would face adversity. And they passed the test and they were able to apply that as we would find out in game four with the I bounce think, back. I think that's good. And I like that they admitted it too, because I mean, at the time they were saying, you know, we have four hurdles to overcome. This is just the second round. Like we're not defeating the second round. And I do feel like all that's true. And they believe that, but I like that they use that as an example, that it was a big deal that they won that series. They came back in those games that they never shied away about talking about Vegas and even some of the broadcasters remarked about that, that they, they weren't running away from that. And they use that as fuel. And I think all these different things are certain aspects that, you know, maybe other teams could pick on or really understand Bednar's coaching philosophy as tactics that to use those things as motivation Maybe things that the players are thinking, but or the media is thinking, but maybe you don't necessarily address as a coach. But he used that to give them motivation and focus, or that he knew that that group would think of it that way. So I think that is a good example of like how Bednar had the, his finger on the pulse of the team and and what would drive them. So because it was a big deal. I think, to me, looking back, like that Blues series was a huge hurdle to overcome. And not just because it's second round and we've never been past it, blah, blah, blah. But there was a lot of adversity in that series. And in a yeah, roundabout pains- way, they, they really give the Blues credit for being a legitimate, a legitimate opponent that caused them to really step their game up to reach this point so and i i said it at one time on discord and it was kind of taken as a hot take i think the blues could have been better than tampa i don't think it's it's clear but i think there's a fair argument to be made i think just as a team they were better than tampa this year yeah it pains me to to no end uh to heap any praise on the blues but I mean, that was a really good team. And, you know, I I also said something similar. Like, you know, I, I think the Blues are probably a, a top five team in this uh, playoff season. Uh, maybe top three, you know, 
you could definitely make a case. And only two teams managed to beat the champs in a game. So they were one of them. But, you know, all the things that you were saying, like, you know, it created the adversity they had to get over. And I don't think it, it had as much to do with the second round as the fact that St. Louis was a tough team and they were an experienced team. And they were, you know, at least somewhat equipped to deal with the avalanche uh, strategies. So, you know, I, I think that series ultimately helped them win the cup more than, than we'll probably know for a while. And that series was unique in that, in the regards of there was that element of what happened off the ice that brought that team closer together. It was really a rallying point for them, not just to win it on the ice, but it brought them together as, you know, that further cemented the bond they shared with each other because of what was going on with, with Kadri and all the oh, yeah, uh, stuff that was going on there. And it was just so dumb on their part. They didn't even realize what they were creating what they were starting you know they were just whining and as we've seen through the playoffs you know it, they certainly weren't the only team that whined and wanted to make a big deal out of something but yeah it was their own doing <clears throat> they, they, yeah, I mean, I, I... they ignited the firestorm and then yeah and, it, and the abs overcame it and Kadri did and it brought them closer and sure I, that is definitely part of their story of this season yeah, I mean, I think when, when Nas came back with that hat trick, you know, I, I knew it was important at the time, and you could tell it was a really big deal, but it just, you know, I, I think when people go back and write about this cup run five, ten years from now, you know, they're going to look on sort of that moment as one of the really important moments of the entire uh, Stanley Cup winning run. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that happened, you just can't <laughs> script it. And it's like every champion needs sort of those moments, and, and they need a little bit of fortune. I think a lot of things did go the Avs way. Not that they weren't legitimately a good team, and like the media kept remarking that, you know, it's satisfying to see a good team win. It, it was like when Tampa won the first one. I think a lot of people were happy because they were a good team. Like, you felt like they deserved to get one and and it felt like the abs were like it was their time they were ready they were so good they were really good last season even but you still need like these moments along the way you need big moments from people you need a little bit of good fortune you need to overcome adversity and i think those are like really key elements to to how they got there yeah and i you know i i hope people go back and sort of look into that because there was a lot of narrative out there that, you know, the abs hadn't been tested and they just sort of blew through everybody in the Western conference, which by the way, wasn't competitive all year. Those kind of things. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think the media overrated the Eastern conference. And I've said this many times over the past few months is that I think the Eastern conference was fairly overrated. Uh, well, they had more bad teams, so the good teams all had more points. Right. And, and all the bad teams didn't. Like, the Central yeah, Division was tough. Yeah. The Central Division's always tough. Like, it was nice to have a little break from it. 
but you right. come like, back. You Nashville's come right a back. totally stupid team, but you know, it's like they were actually pretty good for what they were. You know, it's like they could score. They're a big, dumb, physical team and, and things like that. They had a goalie until the end. Um, and Dallas, yeah, I mean, as annoying as they are, I'm still glad we didn't play them in the first round. Now, of course, at this point, you have to believe they could have beat anybody, and I do, but we still didn't need that annoying first round. Right, and, and this is the way the Central has always been. It's like people sort of look at the Central like, well, ah, you know, it's like you got a you know a bunch of teams that are close and then you know not not really awesome, but not terrible kind of thing. And, the, you know, for those of us that watch the Central Division all the time, it's like the Central is very diverse and the teams play each other very close all year. And that's why you don't get a huge amount of separation. usually. Um, and I think that that's what kind of creates some pretty good teams. Is, you know, you, you usually had like Chicago with their high flying offense. And, you know, like, you had- yeah, Chicago and Winnipeg weren't even bad. Like Arizona was. Sorry, Vlad, but. You know, they, they were the newcomers and they, they were the doormat, but. Right. But everyone else was. That doormat tough. had a winning record against the Stanley <laughs> Cup champions. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know that doormat is why we played national in the first round. So thank you. <laughs> All roads lead to Arizona. <laughs> but I mean, the Central has so many diverse teams and they all do play each other fairly closely and it seems like each each team has one kryptonite team and one team they always beat but the rest <laughs> of it's really competitive um and i i really do think that that sort of masks how how good the teams in the central are you know because you're just not you're not getting 120 point teams out of the central division just because of the way you know everybody plays each other until We're almost year. there. I wish it still pains me. Like one nineteen. That's just. Ugh. I don't know. Just New one franchise more point, guys. What? Just well, okay, and then maybe they can get their one twenty next year. But this is like you were so that close. Miss you, for. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of Codre, I think that that is a good segue to game number four. For sure. So after game three, there were some whispers of a lack of confidence in the play of Darcy Kemper circulating among Avs fans, the mainstream hockey media, and certainly within our own conversational circles on the Discord. Kemper had demonstrated a remarkable ability to bounce back from poor performances, and Game 4 would provide an excellent opportunity to respond to his critics. Game 4 would also mark the return of the aforementioned Nazem Kadri to the Avs lineup. Folks may remember that Kadri had missed the remainder of the Western Conference Final against the Edmonton Oilers after being on the wrong end of a cross-check from behind by Evander Kane early in Game 3 of that series. However, the Tampa Bay Lightning would get on the board just 36 seconds into Game 4 as Anthony Sorelli would take advantage of an open cage and putting the puck past a prone but helmetless Darcy Kemper. According to the NHL rulebook, this play was not blown dead as a result of Kemper losing his helmet because the scoring chance by the attacking team was not deemed imminent. However, it probably should have been blown dead after after Kemper's helmet was knocked off 
but it wasn't. So I guess even in the Stanley Cup final, we still don't know what exactly counts as goaltender interference. But at any rate, the goal is allowed to stand in the Ash Trail by one after the first period. Nathan McKinnon would get his first goal of the Stanley Cup final with Victor Hedman in the box on an interference call. The, in, the initial pass by Mikko Rantanen would bank off McKinnon's skate. Past Andre Vasilevsky, and we have ourselves a tie game. Just way, just halfway through regulation, Victor Hedman would skate the puck into the Avs zone, and his backhand shot would sneak through Kemper to restore the lead for the Lightning. The Avs would once again trail by one, heading into the second intermission. Early in the third, a shot by Nico Sturm would pinball off of Andrew Cogliano and pass Vasilevsky to tie the game at two. Both teams would get some chances, but this game would wind up going to overtime. The Avs would outshoot the Lightning 10-3 in the extra session, with the final shot coming off the stick of a streaking Nazem Kadri, who beats what seemed like the entire complement of Lightning skaters on the ice, and flings a shot that went past Vasilevsky, and eluded pretty much everyone on the ice, and watching this game pretty much everywhere on the planet. But eventually it was discovered that the puck got trapped in the goal underneath the top netting, a la Andre Burakovsky back in round one, to give the Avs the victory by a score of 3-2 in the overtime and taking a 3-1 series lead back to Denver for game five. <clears throat> yeah, the, the way this game unfolded was just... It's part of that storybook. It's, <laughs> I mean, Kadri's return where he still doesn't really have a functioning hand and scores the overtime winning goal. And, um, but the whole rest of the game, like, like you said, just the weirdness of the first one with Kemper's mask coming off. And that was something that broke Tampa's way. And then, but the Avs kept it within one, but it felt like like Tampa knew how to lock it down. They should have locked that game down, right? Like they needed to win a low scoring game like that, and they just couldn't. It's like the Avs just kept coming, and what a crazy goal that was to tie it on. I mean, Sturm should have scored. It really should have been Sturm's goal. Which, if it was, then it would have been Byron's assist again. Another one taken away. But, you know, the guy hadn't even scored his entire tenure with the Avs. So how sweet would it have been just to be like, okay, you saved your one goal for this. And then somehow grazes off Cogliano and gets taken away from him. But still, he made the play and, like, good for him. As he'd been sitting out for a while, too. So, um, you know, just little things like that. Like, it always, you know, winning a championship always takes your star is stepping up, but you also need all the complimentary pieces to add something. So that was certainly a great example there. And it was a huge goal. It tied the game. And of course, this was the longest overtime. This was the, of all the overtimes the Avs played and this was the one that felt like overtime, right? Cause we got past the 10 minute mark. It really started to feel like, um, that you were starting to get into fatigue and that helped the abs because the lightning were very good at defending the abs up to that point with a lot of blocked shots, sticks in the lane, tight defense, and they just couldn't do it anymore. Like they got so fatigued in that overtime that the abs suddenly had room. And even though they were getting tired too, they were still able to execute. They were still able to put plays together. And it really did feel like 
it was a matter of time before they were going to find the winning goal. <clears throat> yeah, I hated the first goal, and I, I'm still not satisfied with the explanation where, you know, <laughs> somebody's about to shoot the puck at a goaltender without a hat on it, and that's okay. Um, and I get it. You don't want the dude taking his, his mask off when there's a, a scoring chance. So it's, you know, I, I think someone said during the game, like, maybe they should just make goalie helmets that don't come off as easy or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Because um, it is difficult. Like, I felt bad for Kemper. It's like, what's he supposed to do? I mean, he's got a guy shooting a puck at him, like Jerry Cheever style with no helmet on. Um, so... Like that, that wasn't that cool. And then the whole rest of the first period, they got the doors blown off. I mean, they just couldn't get anything going during that period. And then they come back, and you know, after some you know fairly bad second periods, as, as we mentioned, they had a really good one. Um, but they could only manage you know one one tie, one goal each in the second period. Um, they get Cogs' goal, and then Tampa's you know got a sort of slight edge in momentum. Um, and I think Tampa kind of knew, like, you know, this kind of was the series. You know, it's like, if it, if it ends up 3-1 after this game, like, you know, they, they might they might fight back a little bit, but it, you're, you're just not going to come back from that. I think one team in the last 100 years. Um, but you're right, Jackie. I mean, the, the overtime, the overtime... I mean, that was just a thing of beauty. They were just, I mean, they were killing them. I, I think the, the third period of game six was reminiscent of, of that overtime as well. Um, but that was just sort of the abs at their finest. They were just controlling the game by having the puck and reloading and re-entering the offensive zone really easily and getting their scoring chances. And it was just fantastic to see Nas and one and a half hands win the game after being out for several weeks. Let me ask you to this question, uh, since you brought this point up about the Avs getting their doors blown off by Tampa in the first period. The way the Avs responded in that overtime, was that something that either of you two thought would be possible after the end of that first period? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what we've been talking about, I, I think being in bed in our shape, I, I think having the conditioning edge, and you know, I don't know the exact sort of average ages of the two teams. I, you know, Tampa seems like they're, you know, quite a bit older. Um, but it just you you kind of look at how the series went. Like Tampa just really couldn't do much after the second period. Like the Avs outscored them um, in the second period or in the third period in overtime, six to one over the whole series. So. You know, they were able to create and, and destroy once you get past that second inter intermission. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, say... I think you can make a good point, Vlad, is just like you see that first period, you're like, this is not going to be a good night. Um, so whatever whatever they did in first intermission um, sort of set the stage for being able to win it later. Yeah, I don't... I think I felt like the game was over after the first period. I mean, you're only down one. For me, that always felt like that was critical. And I don't, maybe that's just playoffs, 
the way it is. I don't know. But I felt like being down two was fairly significant. Being down one never really was. So, um, you know, when McKinnon got that goal that went off a skate and, you know, that was a little bit of a good bounce that they needed. And, and then they never, yeah, they never trailed by two. So it was always within reach. I didn't think they played so poorly that, like, the game was over. Yeah, I mean, I think the response in the second period was exactly what you wanted to see. I mean, I think the first three games of this series were a lot different than the final three. Um, You know, I think once we got to this point, you started to see, you know, sort of less active refing, which I, I had somewhat of a problem with in the in the first three games. Um, you know, that, that wasn't quite as prominent. Um, you know, this is, I, I think for the, the fourth game on, it really started to look like a Stanley cup final. And as far as the, the overtime goes, I was, I, I was, I was wowed with how dominant they were in that extra session. I mean, the, the overtime sessions that we had seen to this point had all been relatively fast. They were over within, like, less than three minutes. So, to see mm-hmm. to see them not just maintain their level of play to keep it, t- you know, toward the point where they got it tied in regulation, but then to just, you know, uh, and even to borrow Jeff Merrick on his, his show, saying they found another gear in that overtime. And he's absolutely right, because it, that's exactly what happened. And I was thinking back after that first period, I was like, okay, uh, just get this thing tied up. I had no problem with it going to overtime, but I was not expecting that kind of overtime. I think yeah, that's I mean, kind of I... scary for the other teams, because overtime should feel like a coin flip, but it wasn't. It was like, you don't no. want to go, you don't want to end this game tied. Like, you it have was to more win like this the Avs versus Vasilevsky in the overtime. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's where their age and their, you know, maybe they, they played more, they, their conditioning just fell off. For me, it was like they couldn't do those things that they, they were doing well early on in the game the blocking shots, getting in passing lanes, the tight defense. It just all went away. And then once the Avs got a little bit of room, it's like game over. And as far as the overtime, one more note on the overtime. I mean, uh, Darcy Kemper gets an assist on the game winner. After everything <laughs> that he, all the criticism he took after game three, uh, the, uh, the doubts, the comments on our Discord, the tweets I saw, Everybody just raking him over the coals for game three and seemingly forgetting how well he played after bounce back performances, you know, for in bounce back performances after losing in the regular season and how well he did in that regular season. Uh, just the utter lack of faith that folks seem to have in him and just the shadow of doubt that was cast on him to see him come back and hold things down after that first goal. And recover after the headman goal 
and you get an assist on the the game winner in overtime to give your team a three one lead coming home for a game five. And I he's not like much was... of a puck handler. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it's, like it's, how many you know, it's not like Frank. Like, I would expect an assist from Frank. But Darcy, that's he's, – he's not like Varley level bad, but he's, you know, he's, he's kind of kicking it back there a lot. I guess that's a good point. How many assists does he have in his career? Probably not many. There was some stat, and I don't – I almost want to say that was the first goalie assist in – I just want to say Stanley Cup history, which sounds crazy. Maybe finals history. I don't think that was the first assist ever in the playoffs by a goalie. Maybe in the Stanley Cup final. Or maybe but, in an overtime Stanley Cup. Yeah, which is why sometimes you hear these things and you're like, okay, what's the context? But I almost feel like <laughs> I want to say it was the only goalie assist in Stanley Cup final history. So good for him. But yeah, that play was fun. And then... You know, with Byram being the one guy that noticed it was in the net and nobody else did. Like, that was he was like the furthest guy there. away, too. Yeah. <laughs> he must have like 2010 vision or something like that. <clears throat> yeah, I certainly wouldn't be able to see it. But yeah, he said because he saw it, like the net pop up a little and saw it in there. And then um, on the replays, you see Stamkos go by and just kind of like casually bat it out. <laughs> <laughs> It makes you wonder, like, if Byron hadn't got up there and Amcos did knock it down, like, what? who would have been the next person to notice? Probably the Avs video guys or something would have started yelling, like, hello. <laughs> but, um, so that kind of made it funny, too. Of course, we had to have the too many men controversy, which took away from, like, the joy of it, which is really dumb. <laughs> Cooper's like, I'm mad and I'm going to tell you why. So everybody had to guess. Really stupid. <laughs> yeah, but now we have that legacy for years <laughs> to come. <laughs> well, some people were even like, oh, did Byron touch it? Was it I stick? You know, it's just so dumb. It was whatever, but you know, that I get it. The, the bigger the games are, there's always some dumb controversy to go through. I am glad that, A, we didn't have to zap root or headshot, so thank you. We didn't have to deal with that. And, two, <laughs> we didn't have to deal with actual goalie interference. Thank you. That would have been mind-numbing for the ages. Yeah. I was, I was pleasantly surprised after being uh, strangely disturbed, I guess, by that press conference that John Cooper held for the 45 seconds he had it to see Bedner's response and just essentially saying it was nothing. This was, <laughs> this was a nothing thing. I think I, I understand why he was upset because like you had said previously, you know, going down three to one, you know it's over. Like It, it was going to be a huge difference that that series was tied versus going down three to one. I mean, that, that's pretty much the series right there, right? So yeah. that's probably why he was so upset, because that was it. And he did backtrack a little bit after that. So I mean, Very little sorry. bit. He did, but... So I get it. Like, they knew it was over. and But the Avs earned it. I mean, you can't look at that overtime and the way they were playing and say that they weren't going to get it. 
And the refs weren't going to call it because too many men is a penalty. They weren't going to call that penalty in overtime. Especially and, since both skaters, you know, both teams had skaters that were over the, the threshold. And it's yeah, funny, I mean, McKinnon talking about lots it. Lots of people on the ice there. That he was trying to take his time to stay touching the blue line so it wouldn't happen what happened to Landy in the San Jose series. Because they're bit. I think their door is a little bit further down than it is at, say, Ball Arena. And um, that makes a difference. So. And, could and you the say that... Go ahead, Jackie. Oh, no. I was just going to say, you know, is it another thing that was a little bit in their favor? Maybe, even though you probably could complain about too many men on a lot of plays. So it, it pretty much was nothing. Yeah, and yeah. the league even released a statement afterwards saying that they all the officials conferred, like, no, nothing to see here. Move along. It's not like Vasilevsky okay. didn't have his mask on or anything. <laughs> they didn't see that either, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> they got their luck early. Ab's got it late when it mattered. So, yeah, it evened out. And so we head back to Ball Arena for the first elimination game of the Stanley Cup Final for Game 5. It took until about four minutes left in the period, but the first goal of the game would go to the Lightning on a shot by Jan Ruda that would sneak under the glove of Darcy Kemper for the opening score. In the second period, Valery Nichushkin would tie the game on a rebound opportunity after Kale McCarr's shot would bounce off Andre Vasilevsky. With Alex Killorn and somehow JT Confer going into the box together for a four-on-four situation, the Lightning would wind up getting a two-man advantage with Kale McCarr going into the box on a tripping call. On the ensuing power play, the, uh, Nikita Kucherov would score to put the Avs down by one again. And the Avs would trail at intermission going uh, into the third period. McCarr would... Tie the game for the Avs at two early on in the third as his shot would deflect off the skate of Eric Chernak and between Veselovsky's pads. Andre Palat would put the lightning ahead with under seven minutes to go, getting a shot that would squeak through the pads of Darcy Kemper. The Avs would attempt to rally for the tying goal late, but in a true testament to irony, they wind up getting called for a bench banner for, you guessed it, too many men on the ice with under three minutes left to play. That would spell curtains on the comeback, and the Avs would fall to the Lightning by a score of 3-2. And the series shifts back to Tampa for a Game 6. Yeah, the Avs just didn't have it in this game. Um, they, they didn't play their game. They were a little tentative. I mean, they were, you know, they were good at times. It wasn't just a total blowout or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of getting that five on three is when you call it, you kind of call a soft penalty like that. And then you have to call one like McCarr's trip. Um, you know, that that's when you're kind of overbalancing things, but it is what it is. Um, you know, they, they just weren't ready for success. And that's kind of how I look at this game. Yeah. I mean, thank God they won the cup because if we would have had ref dissection for the rest of time, I think I would have lost it. 
<laughs> the refs did not lose this game for them. I agree with you. The four on three was a little cheap. Like, give a team a four on three Stanley Cup game. And was it because they were the team down or whatever? That's the one where I, I could agree with the annoyance. The other stuff is just like, it happens. If you're not winning a cup because of one of these calls, you're not good enough to win the cup because it's right. ridiculous. I mean, even the worst call, it can, you know, it kills you for one goal, and that's not going to decide a series, you hope. Yeah, and the too many men at the end, I mean, and it was too many men. It was over at that point. There was three minutes left. They they weren't getting anything going. That wasn't it. So I would have rather had that than in game six. So they had to call too many men, get it over with, and... And you know, move on from it. But I agree with you. It it really didn't feel like their game. And you look at it. I mean, it was tied. It was tied in the third period. Like they definitely could have done the thing. I mean, after all of this, it was tied. It was their game to win, and they just couldn't. Like, didn't they have a, a power play with the tide, and they just couldn't get one? And um, yeah, I mean, they were they were just. There were so many times that I I was watching this game and I, I was just like, you know that that's just the the ninety percent instead of a hundred percent that you needed on that play to to really make a difference and it, it you know, that was just sort of a theme all night where they were just close but no cigar. And I think they admitted it like after yeah. the fact that it's just human nature. You think tonight's the night, and I remember you know we were all pretty much thinking like getting the champagne ready like tonight's the night we're gonna we're at home we're rolling we're gonna do this and nobody has to work tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> right like it's perfect friday night let's win a cup and i forget who said it but it was like you're going to the rink thinking we're gonna win the cup tonight you just you start thinking ahead a little bit too much and that's fine it's human nature but it does kind of explain why maybe they were a little bit disjointed in this one. And I felt like everyone was trying to make like the play, like we're, I'm, we're, we're going to win the cup on this play. And I don't, not trying to say it is in like a selfish way, but just in a, like, this is the moment. And you could kind of see that they're all thinking like, this is going to be it. And it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And being there, for that that game five it was i hadn't felt that kind of energy in that building before because there was there was of course the excitement one would expect during a stanley cup final game but to see the possibility of having the stanley cup being presented on your home ice and that just that extra charge was just in the air. Even I felt it waiting for warmups. It was like the longest hour ever for the pregame skate to come out. Like, let's go, let's go, let's 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 get this thing going. And it was just maybe we got a little ahead of ourselves, thinking, yeah, it's gonna be the night of nights as we put a bow on the season, and then as things would turn out, gotta wait a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I mean, you're you're trying to get it over with rather than earn it, and you know that that's. I think that sort of 
manifested itself in what we saw on the ice. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe they saw the champagne in the hallways or beer in the hallways. You know, they, you know, and then ESPN showing the cup rolling through the building and second intermission and stuff <laughs> like that. You know, you said, <laughs> is this cursing this? I don't know. I, nobody said shut out or anything. I, what's going on here? Which is a good thing why they had that kind of lead. You know, if that had. If they didn't have quite as a buffer, you wonder, would that have really kind of impacted it? But it's a good thing they sort of had one that they could just put in the bin and have, have more chances. Now, each subsequent game is more difficult. Then you had to go on the road. And then game seven, I mean, who knows what that would have been like. Well, Vlad and I were talking before the show, and I mentioned that the Avs did not win a game five on their route to winning the cup. And and that's kind of weird because in in general series strategy, like everyone points to game five as being the pivotal game. Um, and they only played two of them and they lost both of them. And, you know, it, it didn't end up matter, but that's, that's kind of odd. I, I'm, I'd like to go back and see if a team has won the cup without winning a game five before. Cause now, that's the kind of goofy stat that, that you might find. And it's true. It could have been a little bit of the same thing against the Blues, where they had a chance to wrap it up, and it was going to be a really big accomplishment, and they were at home. Nate scores the biggest goal ever in 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that one was definitely a little bit different because they had the three-goal lead, and it was like, oh, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really the only game they collapsed in. So... It's good they didn't do that again. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a collapse. They were just sort of blah. Yeah, not with it. They were not trusting the process, then I would say. It was the uh, pregame to what would become the eventual Stanley Cup hangover. True that. It's just the appetizer. <laughs> it's happy hour, everybody. <laughs> Uh, quick numbers from this one. Uh, the Avs outshot the Lightning 37-29. to The Lightning would go 1-for-4 on the power play, and the Avs would go 0-for-2 in this one. Yeah, I was disappointed they couldn't get a power play goal in this one. And Like I said, I mean, overall, the power play was pretty yeah. darn successful, but this is one where you're just like, this is when we needed one, guys. <laughs> Tonight we needed in- one. I think it's interesting the two games that they lost in the series um, were the two games that Tampa outdrew um, on power on power plays, um, and you know is that causation? Is that correlation? You know, it's it's tough to say. I mean, is that just a a manifestation of of how Tampa were was playing in those two games, or you know, was it the active refing, um, Tampa's favor that sort of helped them win those two games? Well, especially in this one, we know that the Avs had self-inflicted problems. Right. But, yeah, they needed to win the special teams battle to have any chance to win this one, and they didn't. Yeah, the the, the draw on the high-sticking call that you know Logan O'Connor had, that was their moment to put this thing away late in the second. Yep, exactly. And, uh, unfortunately, it just 
wasn't meant to be at that point. They would save it for game six. The thing that I worried about after this game is not, you know, not whether they had the moxie to, to pull it together to win a sixth game. And, um, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at a battle of attrition as the series goes on. You're looking at like, you know, it looks like Berkey's definitely not going to play this series. Nuke's obviously hobbling around. Like, you know, Padre only has one hand. Um, yeah, I mean, you were hoping you know, like, that it was good that you had three wins by that point, right? Like, you only just need a little bit more. Yeah, and it's like you, you're starting to see Makar kind of doubled over a lot before face-offs. And, and uh, you know, everybody's showing signs of a, you know, a long playoff run. So you're, you're kind of wondering, like, you know, did they just miss the opportunity to get this done before everybody just falls apart? Can we bring it together for game six and everybody just grit it out? And they do. They save the best for last. And the last would be game six at Amelie Arena. However, it didn't start out that way. A turnover by Hale McCart early on in the first period would bounce right to the stick of Steven Stamkos, who had put the shot between the legs of Darcy Kemper, putting the abs down by one. I'm going to say this very slowly. This would be the final goal that Darcy Kemper would surrender for the remainder of the Stanley Cup final. In the second period, Nathan McKinnon would blast a one-time shot on a delayed penalty call past Andre Vasilevsky to tie the game at one. And then a little over halfway through regulation, a Nathan McKinnon pass would bounce off Ryan McDonough's leg to Arturi Lekkonen, who would fire the puck past Vasilevsky to put the abs ahead 2-1. to one. After that, the Avs would lock things down and holding the Lightning to a handful of shots for the remainder of the contest, including just four in the third period. The Lightning would pull Vasilevsky for the extra skater late, but to no avail. And the final score from Amelie Arena, the Avs defeat and dethrone the Tampa Bay Lightning by a score of 2-1, to one, win the Stanley Cup final four games to two, and claim their third Stanley Cup championship in franchise history. As... Connor McGahey said on his radio call, the job is done. It was pretty fitting. Definitely a riff <laughs> off of a Bednarism. Um, it's definitely satisfying for so many reasons. It's, it's hard to encapsulate. Of course, you know, I, I love that the resiliency and they were able to come back. And I think they were the first team that ever won all three, all four series on the way to a Stanley cup by coming back in the clinching game. But I was a little bit worried that you can only do it so many times. I mean, it's so difficult to come back. And I think five out of the six games against the blues, they didn't score first. So it wasn't something that phased them. But for me, just that they locked it down, that was so cool. That brought back a little bit of that game, too, that we saw. Um, they did it against Edmonton. I forget which game that was. In their shutout. Was, I think that was also game two in their shutout. And, um, you know, it would have been fun to win on some dramatics or whatever, but I really do feel like 
it put a bow on what this Avs team was. Was yeah, they didn't score first. They came back and then they just dominated, and and it was their cup. So it, to me, it was like the the perfect ending. To and no drama. Of course, it was tense, but you know, no drama. Not having to worry about getting scored on, and and that was it. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think the thing that will stand out about this game to me forever is is the third period, especially kind of the, the first ten minutes. Um, there, there was one point where they wanted on eleven straight shot attempts uh, over several minutes, and it's just they were rolling lines. Everybody was contributing. They were keeping the puck in the zone, and, and Tampa just had no answer. Um, <clears throat> you know, you you look at how sort of Tampa's emotions went in this game. I mean, you know, it started off okay for them. I mean, they had a lead after one, and the Avs had a good second period, and they lost the lead, and they started getting mad because bad. Um, and in the third period, they just, you know, they – they couldn't answer. This was, you know, like we said, it, it was kind of like the overtime where the abs just controlled play and didn't give Tampa a chance to do anything. And I, I think it was a great way for them to end, you know, both the series and the playoff run because I think what they did in that period kind of showed what they did best and why they were so good. Uh, quick numbers from Game 6. The Avs outshot the Lightning 30-23. to Both teams went 0-for-1 on the power play. This marked the 10th comeback win in the postseason for the Avs, which tied the mark set by the 2009 Pittsburgh Penguins. The Avs finished the postseason with a record of 16-4. and 16-4. and I know. It's, it is incredible. It, it's weird because... It's surreal because it's like, wow, they did it. Like, they actually, like, this is happening. But on the other hand, it, it feels so normal. Like, they won at the rate they won at in the regular season. They won the way they won in the regular season. It wasn't like they had to become something different. It was just such a typical experience. And I think you mentioned way at the beginning, Earl, like, good thing that this wasn't more stressful, you know, like with Game 7s or... They were never down in the series. <laughs> you never had to think of it like, oh, this is it. They don't win tonight. It's curtain. You know, we never had that feeling. Yeah. So while it was stressful and I was about ready to have like an emotional breakdown, it it could have been a lot more stressful. You are right about that. So it I mean, is I think remarkable. The two game sixes like, were somewhat stressful at times yeah. because you know, you you didn't want it to, to go to a game seven, and it's you know it's just very stressful. That it, you know, the absolute great game seven, and we ne- we never had so to see. You, you we like, never had to see, right. see if this team could win a game seven. Right, it wouldn't that, it wouldn't be a, a podcast without Earl going in a robo. So I'm sorry, Earl. You're gonna have to repeat that again. <laughs> Um, you you just you know you don't want to go to a game seven. We we don't want to see that, um, just because of their record in game sevens and the fact that they're stressful for fans. Um, you know, I I think one reason a lot of people say you want home ice advantage throughout the playoffs is that there is a game seven. You know, you're gonna have home ice for it. I, I think with this team, 
it's more that they didn't need it. Um, they got up early in, in all four series. Um, and they didn't need to have extended series to move on. And I, I think that's, that's a little bit more important. I mean, I guess at this point, you got to believe that they would have won it. They would have won their game sevens, but I am glad that we didn't have to see that. God, I wouldn't want it. Tuesday night game, come on. <laughs> oh, I know. I was very fearful of the possibility of a game seven when game five was at its end. I I, I spoke with uh, one of the attendants there in my section, and he's, of course, a huge Avs fan, and I told him, no, this series ends Sunday. And he's like, yeah, it's ending Sunday. So after <laughs> the, the the watch party on Sunday, w- I bumped into him, and uh, because our, my seats for the watch party weren't in my normal section, so it was actually really funny that I bumped into him. And we look at each other like, yeah, we do it! We told you it was going to end in, in six games. But yeah, a game seven, I I wanted no part of. I absolutely wanted no part of it because the I, element I gone through the emotional ringer. I was I was just ready. I mean, it is a little bit sad that we're not like watching this team still play, just because they're so great and it was something we enjoyed for so long. But it was just like, no, we can't. <laughs> I cannot do this. And then you start thinking they can't be the first teams. 1942 to lose after going up 3-1, right? And it does seem so yeah. silly now because it's like yeah, this team was really really good and they deserved it, but you just start thinking like, please don't be that team. Please don't be that team. <laughs> I mean, they had such they had such control in the series coming back 3-1 and it would have been just devastating for it to just slip away for a game seven with the possibility of the series relying on just who had the better night. And I was not about that. Like, nope, let's just end it as quickly as we can, please. Yeah, I mean, for those that don't or do remember 2001, like, that's exactly what you don't want to go through in the finals. Yeah, I wasn't following day-to-day back then, so this truly is my first, you know, start-to-finish, day-to-day kind of experience. And for me, it just you know, two weeks of it. At some point, you just want the answer. Like, if it was a book, I would have read the last page. At some point, you just want to know know what it's going to be. For me, <laughs> it's like watching the Super Bowl over two weeks. Like, you watch five minutes at a time, and then you don't get to watch anymore for two days. That's what this yeah. whole thing was like. At some point, you're just, you know, you want to be in the moment. You, you want to live and die with it. And then you have to stop and then you have a day off and that, and then it continues. Like to me, that was hard. And, and it was like, yeah, enjoy this process and everything. But after like three games, after game three, I was just like, just tell me, do they win it or not? Because <laughs> I just, it just went on and on and on. Exciting. And then you had the excitement of game four. It just, I hate how dragged out it was. Like, I don't even, when the Rockies lost in the World Series, it was over really quick. So it's like, <laughs> sure I've was. never had that experience where it's just like, this is, 
this is just taking way too long. And then I guess in the NBA, they have two days between every game. I mean, that's insane, really. <laughs> you just need to get on with it at some point. Like, is this team going to win or not? And yeah, I mean, obviously, God, they did. But I don't know if I'm ready for that two-week ringer again. I guess we'll see next summer. And I think after watching what, what's happened over the last week, uh, I would have wanted to skip ahead to see how the parade turned out. <laughs> <laughs> your Con Smythe winner also happens to be your Norris Trophy winner, Kale McCarr. Uh, was this the pick that either of you were expecting, or did you two feel that somebody else could have or should have been... Uh, nominated and awarded the uh, Consmith for the postseason. There's I a couple bet. guys that, that could have been considered, but I, I think because it's for the whole playoffs, um, you just look at the body of work that McCarr had over the, the four series. Um, you know, he's the one that really stood out. I mean, you could say like maybe in the blue series, like that was probably his, his toughest series overall, but you know, I, I think sort of games one through 20, um, you know, he really set himself apart. I think other guys I would have given consideration to would have been um, Nichushkin. Um, you know, he kind of tailed off with his displaced fractured foot at the end, but still, he, I, I think he proved himself a, a very worthy playoff um, hockey player. Um, you know, I, th I think McKinnon didn't put up the points maybe you'd expect. But I think his defensive game and, and the top line for Tampa throughout this whole series that um, you, you kind of see that trade-off where he sacrificed his own offense for the team good. And I know it would be tough to give him the con smice with you know, not as many points as you expect, but you know, he was a big part of that. And I, I think Landy um, playing on one knee and, and having the playoffs he did, you always want to sort of you know, look at what he does besides putting up points. Um, and it was a lot. So th those are guys I'd look at too. And I'd, I would say, you know, it, it's tough to, to put the goalies together, but, you know, I, I think when you do put Frank and Kemper together, you know, they played 20 games and lost four. I mean, that's a really good tandem. I mean, they were never going to get the con with just barely over a 900. Well, but, I mean, he barely played over half the games, too. I mean, together, but... Yeah. Um, I say Kadri would have been my number two. I do think the right person won. Um, and, and I could see the argument that, well, he didn't play until game four, but he just made enough of a difference. Like, he won... And and like you said, if you think about it more as like the whole playoffs, then I think that makes it easier to say Kadri could have won it rather than if it's just finals and you say only played half of it. That that is a fair argument. And he only had one goal, but it was a big one. <laughs> yeah. He was he was a big part of it. He's he was a big part yeah. of why they they got to where they were. So I think it was Chambers gave him his second place vote. I actually agreed with that. I think. Kadri should have gotten a little bit more credit, but as far as, like, I pretty much thought Makar was going to win. 
I mean, he had the points lead at that point, and then when he got up to 29 points, um, he pretty much had it in the bag, I think. He had done enough. He had the two goals in the finals, and or in game two, and that kind of, that was enough to, to say, like, he had the resume, and I mean, like it or not, it is kind of a media favorites award. So Nuke was never going to be like enough of a favorite to get it, even though he did have four goals, would have five if uh, the the offside wouldn't get called back, which is that is pretty incredible for for doing that in the finals. But um, you know, and then also after Makar won the Norris. Um, it's just, he's just like destined to be on every trophy. I don't know. I just, it was the right call. And I agree with him. McKinnon got better. I didn't like his Blues series either. But he got better. And then he was the guy that had the two points in the in the cup clincher. And so that's what you want to see for McKinnon to kind of put his stamp on it at the end there. But I was a little surprised he got so many second place votes because I'm not sure I would have gone there. I think my second favorite comment after the game was when they're asking Gabe Landeskog about what other teams can do to improve like the Avalanche had over the last five years. Like, get yourself a Kale McCall. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck, suckers. (laughs) I mean, it truly is remarkable what an incredible player he is. Like, you know, we've seen him from the beginning, and we get to see him all the time, but he truly is probably, I I think it's fair to say he's in the conversation for the best player in the league, in the world. And especially to be that guy as a defenseman, just the difference he can make on a team is, I mean, we probably are watching greatness here. He, I think somebody re- remarked, on Discord, I don't remember who said it, but um, like what he's won to this point is pretty close to enough for a Hall of Fame nod, yeah. even just what he's done to this point. And obviously, we expect him to have a much longer career and he's going to win a bunch of these trophies. But even if, God forbid, something happens and he, his career is cut short, like he's done enough where he probably will be in the Hall of Fame. That's a good yeah, point. I mean, he he's won the Hobie Baker. He won the Calder. He now has a Norris. He has a Con Smythe, a Stanley Cup ring. He's 23 years old. And what was it? Uh, didn't uh, this came out after the award show where somebody had texted Roman Yossi about how he didn't win it. And he was like, yeah, because now it's going to be hard to win like the next six because Kale's going to win them all. You know, it would be interesting to see where that goes because it's definitely a respect award and, and I think the voters always like to look for um, guys that have already won it like Hedman and y- Yossi. I would have felt worse for Yossi if he ha- already hadn't won one. Like, it's just such a big deal to get there and to be considered, you know, Norris Trophy defenseman and this and that. And I really want to kill to win this one. It was his time. I think he had the season, especially seeing that he won the cup and won the con Smythe. Like this was his year to get it. And you have to think into the future, he's going to win more, but you also never know. It really is kind of points based. 
I mean, you, you see Adam Fox win, and then he's not even a finalist. It just matters so much what you do on the scoreboard. And there's just no guarantee that Makar is going to be, like, the highest scoring every single year. He might be the most impactful, but it's just, like I'm saying, you can't ever predict where the counting stats are going to go. And so I definitely think he's going to win it more in the future, but you just also can't predict. So I was really glad when he won it. I thought it was going to be close, and I'm glad it went in his favor. So, And it was a unanimous vote for the first time since they started counting all that for... For, for the for the consmite, yeah, it was an anonymous vote, a unanimous vote rather. For I think I think him for, having the points lead is is why. You know, if he didn't, then I think you might have seen it split. But it's kind of like with the Norris. If he had hit thirty goals or if he had the points lead, he probably would have completely ran away with it. But you know, when you don't have the points lead. You you can see it split a little bit more. One of those East Coast leaders just looking at the stat columns. Oh, Yosi's leading. <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that's why the Norris was as close as it was. I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from Yosi. That's an incredible year. And I'd like to see McCarr have a year like that. I'd like to see McCarr surpass 100 points. I think he can do it. But scoring also went crazy this year. Like, so yeah. many players had career highs, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Like, is is this the new era? Is it going to be like that? Are, are we going to redefine what high is? You know, is 40 goals, 50 goals now 40 goals? Is defenseman scoring 80? Like, it's great, but it's not, like, you know, spectacular. So it, it's hard to say in that context. Is yeah, you see a defenseman scoring 96 points is crazy, but, you know... Will it be, what will the mark be going into the future? It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, we're nowhere close to 80s numbers. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of headroom. <laughs> a lot of those records will fall. Yeah. If we get up to that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think, you know, the kind of 212 points in a season and. Right. Uh, that, that just. Those kind of records are still. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and but you know, you see someone like Stamkos. He had sixty goals a few years ago, and and you know, you're not seeing that really. I, I think, um, you know, I think I think instead of like one star on a team really racking up a lot of points, I, I think you're seeing um, clusters of stars um, really drive scoring, and I, you know, I I, I think. That both elevates the point totals, but it also limits how much one guy can get. Yeah, I think that happens with the Avs, right? Like, across the board, everyone has a lot of points, but, like, nobody's cracked 100 yet. Yeah. And probably will still be that way. So, just going to be hard for McKinnon, I think, to win the heart. And I guess... You put Makar in that conversation now, but it's like, what kind of season would he have to have to pretty much win all those narratives? You know, can a defenseman win the heart? How can he be the best player on this team? So, but I guess that's the one thing he could shoot for. I'm sure he's going to add a little gold and 
and World Cup gold at some point in his career too. Yeah, I think the Avs should start playing at five thirty then. I think if the Avs played their games at five thirty, he'd he'd probably get a lot more votes for the heart. Possibly, possibly, but at least everyone got to see what the Avs look like now. You know, like the early narratives were they're maybe more of a fire wagon team, kind of like Edmonton, and yeah, they score a lot, but. They just don't play that way. It's a lot about puck control. It's about using their speed to get the puck back to forecheck, you know, things like that. And so hopefully we'll see that a lot of people were able to actually finally watch them and see how they play and see how they could play so well defensively and kind of give them credit in that way. And you always look to the cup winner to see, like, how does the cup winner influence, you know, let's say draft picks or what people target in free agency and and what becomes important. You know, the big teams win, so it's all big, strong offseason. You know, are the Avs going to change their narrative there, or are they just going to kind of say, well, that's the team that has Kale McCarr, so we're just going to go back to big, strong. Yeah, judging by the coaching hire so far, I don't I know, think too many teams are ready to change. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're uh, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves on that. I mean, uh, uh, as far as uh, the the uh, the con- the cons my talk goes for me, I I absolutely agree that the right person won it, and he won it decisively. I don't think there would have been any other serious contenders uh, to be named uh, with the Avs winning the way that they did. Uh, I even I think if somehow Tampa would have pulled it out, they probably still would have named Makar as the con Smythe. But the uh I don't I don't think there's any a, anybody else feasibly that they could have chosen. You could always go with the name recognition of of a McKinnon. But again, Makar was just so solid from start to finish. So th- there just doesn't in my mind seem to be a, a really serious uh, alternative selection that they could have chosen uh, in place of Makar. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, the other guys that I named off that I like, I mean, they were good, you know, runner-up, um, honorable mention types. But um, you know, I, I mean, I hate to do it based on points, but I, I think when you get further along in the playoffs. Really, all that matters is goals and wins, and you know those were the kind of things that that he was influencing. And there was and, a little bit of talk like McDavid could get it because he was still the points leader, but he was the way Edmonton was just dispatched. It was like nobody's thinking about what the Oilers were doing, <laughs> especially when I mean they did score against the Abs, but they really scored against Calgary. That's how they got all those points. But I don't know. I don't like the big reigning in the con Smythe. Just like it doesn't always have to be about points, but it's just kind of like I mean, you don't have to think too hard about this. <laughs> it's just it was a great performance. Just give it to the guy. 
Yeah, I mean, Miko was second on the team in points, and no one was pointing at him. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> the first non-corporeal form to win the stand, the con smite. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. All right, so uh, let's do some three stars, and let's actually do as uh, Jackie suggested pre-show. Let's all do a set of three stars for ourselves. I think that's a a fitting end for this yeah, cup final we, run. I think we figured when you win the Stanley Cup, you know, there's no scratches. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... Hold up, hold up. You went all robo-voice, Jackie. Hang on a second. Uh... Okay, sorry, the connection got a little bit weird here, so uh, try again. Oh, I just said, um, we decide when you win the cup, probably no scratches. Okay, so we're ready to, to hand out multiple stars. For sure. So who wants to go first? I guess Jackie, start us off. Yeah, I think you know where I'm going. So while we're ready. We haven't talked about this person yet, um, but I I do truly think that Byron deserves restart recognition for the way that he played and um, really took up the slack for when Sam went down. But it really was in Game Six of that Blues series when they really started playing him as sort of a three-headed monster trio with Makar and Taze. Like, basically one of the three was on the ice all the time, and so he really started becoming, like, this team's number three defenseman or or one of the big three, and um, and just the role that he had in the, the Tampa Bay series. He played a ton, um, and, and then the game six where he played 26 minutes of game that didn't even go to overtime. He played 26 minutes, including over 10 minutes in the third period alone. And, and he's one of the reasons why they were able to play so dominant like that. And um, I just thought he's consistent, really solid. He, he, there was only nine goals scored against on him the entire playoffs. Um, so his analytics were really good. I know everybody was w hoping for that one goal from him, but I think he got a number of really good looks. Hit the post a couple times. Could have won the overtime, the game in overtime. Hit the post, but scored nine points, eight of them at even strength. Like he was there to make a play when it was needed. He he was the primary assist on the McKinnon goal in the in the game six to win it all. So just. A really awesome performance from him and you know obviously he's my favorite one of our favorites we're always rooting for him always liked his game love his mix of aggression physicality smart skating everything but I think everyone can see just like how well he played in the playoffs and that's so good for him but I think even looking in the numbers just like how much time he played is maybe something that not everybody sees and um, so I think he deserves to get recognized for that. Oh, and one other thing that one of someone tweeted that he played the most out of 
any player on both teams at five on five in the finals, not just the final game, but the entire Tampa Bay series. So that just shows like how important he was to this win. So yeah, you go Bo. And thanks for the parade memories too, Bo. <laughs> you can now ride a fire truck. It's okay. Um, do I have to come up with my other two or are we going to each kind of go around? We can go, we can go around. We can do one at a time. I'm okay with that. Yeah, let's, let's go around. Cause I'm, I also uh, want to talk about Bo a little bit. Um, he would also be one of my three stars, uh, just because it's, it, it's something that everyone was talking about as far as it's difficult for the younger players to make a difference in, in the later you get in these Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, and he did get, keep getting better and better. And I remember Rachel Robinson, I think it was either towards the end or after the end of game six that we may be watching a budding superstar here. Um, you know, which is just fantastically scary for the rest of the league when you see the Norris Trophy and Conn Smythe winner and then a guy like Byron in his, basically his rookie season, definitely his rookie playoff season, um, continuously getting better like that. Um, and yeah, good for Benner having the guts to do it. it. But this wasn't the first time that Byron's been like leaned on heavily at 5 on 5. It's happened in the past. I think he knew that Byron could do it, but you know, obviously on this stage was something he needed to see. But, but yeah, his twenty-one-year-old rookie defenseman was was someone that he really heavily leaned on. And I just, I, I loved seeing him getting more and more time with McCarr, and, and you know, you you kind of saw a lot of time with McCarr and, and Byram out there, and then then Taves was kind of going back and forth between EJ and Manson. Um, you know, sort of more of the shutdown thing. And I don't think that's – that's not really a, a comment on Bo as far as his defensive ability. I, I think it's the way Bednar saw the chemistry between McCarr and Byram is that that's a pair that you can put out there and you can pin a team in the defensive zone forever. Um, so, again, that's scary for the rest of the league to contemplate. Um, but he definitely deserves recognition. I, 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 I agree. I, I wish that he could have gotten one of those goals to go in. I mean, uh, how many? I think he ended up over forty shots during the playoffs. Um, you know, that's, that, you know, that's that's tough because he had a lot of great chances and it just it never fell for. Him. But um, I, I think before the playoffs started, he. And the defensive staff kind of went into it with like, let's be defensively responsible. Let's do, you know, a, a good job everywhere else on the ice. And if you score, great. If not, you know, we there's other people that can do that. You know, no time will come. Um, I think I think they always do encourage the aggressive play, and they want all their D's to jump up and everything. But it reminded me a lot of when Bo won the gold for. Hockey Canada at, at the World Juniors and just the way that he 
he was 18 years old then. So the mantra is always like you lean on your 19 year old defenseman, but he, he was 18 underage out there and he's the guy they leaned on. It was very similar to that kind of performance. And I think he only had like two points or something in that, in that tournament. And it was like, well, he didn't score a lot, but it was like, look what he did. Like he won. He was a big reason why they won that gold. Yeah. It's um, very similar kind of thing. And and even then, he did have points. He still is at his half point per game, which he's at right now. Like, he doesn't even have to get better from that point. If he's a half point per game defenseman on this team for his career, like, that is still even good offense. Yeah, but he's definitely getting better. He's only 21. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you, you see sort of, you know, He's two years behind McCarr, so like, you know, a what what is McCarr going to look like when he's twenty five, and b what can Byron look like when he's twenty three? And it's just you know, it, it's got to be horrible. Yeah, it so. is very exciting. So in a couple of years, when Gabe says, "Go find yourselves a Bo Byram somewhere," that <laughs> <laughs> could be easy to find that kind of guy too. Yeah. But it's why it's such a competitive advantage for the Avs. Like, you know, Bo wasn't a luxury. He was somebody else they could lean on. And by that token, I also don't think Sam's a luxury. He's not a trade chip. Like, they're going to need these guys to continue that competitive advantage. It's not about just having the one puck mover, the one dynamic guy. Like, it's it's a whole philosophy. It's It's a whole way to build your defense. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have defensemen like that, it allows you to not have to think about spending a lot of money in free agency on on either your internal guys or shopping on the external market. Because you have these guys out there more often than any of your forwards. So you're kind of leveraging that talent. Like, McCarr plays, you know, one and a half times as much as your basic forward. So he's like having one and a half all-star forwards. So I, I think having really versatile and skilled defensemen is a way to leverage uh, your cap. Yeah, that's very true. And you can minimize your third pair, but yeah, you're also true that your forwards don't play over 20 minutes. And you can have one of these guys on the ice all the time. But um, let's see. Are you going to name a star, or are we are we to Vlad? Um, I, no, I, Bone Byram is one of my stars. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead, Vlad. Well, I'd... Sorry, connection's a little... There we go. All right. Okay. So, unfortunately, this will not be a unanimous decision on Bo Byram. That's but... fine, because I think we need to mention more than three people. So, that's fine. So, I'm going to give my one of my stars to... I'm riding the train. It's going to Valery Nichushkin. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, worthy choice there, too. We, we we hear a lot about the mythos of the 
the grit and the heart and the sacrifice and players playing with passion and willing to put it all out there on the line for their team to win this, uh, to win, to win the cup. And, uh, Nichushkin was one of the forwards, one of the few forwards that you know, was near the top, if not at the top, of scoring during the cup final. And he ha- had to literally, you know, wear a, you know, like a, a sandal just to play <laughs> in game six after, you know, the way in heart. <laughs> right. They put him on a flatbed. Apparently, you can haul <laughs> trains on a flatbed these days. So, and more, and more than, of course, just his scoring. And this is all part and parcel for us watching him over the last uh, a couple of years, especially after the, his game evolved after signing the PTO three years ago to become what he has become. So as great as it was to see him, you know, be such a, you know, a factor for that extra scoring threat during the final, we got to see his defensive game really shine. And he really was a big factor on that with Lekadin and with Landis or whomever he happened to be playing with on that, you know, on his, on his line. And to put that again, to break a bone <laughs> In your foot, and for anybody who saw those pictures, they're gruesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? A Julian Reese block what happened to him? Like, was it a blocked shot? It must have been. I mean, Julian Reese said after what you know during their media day that yeah they used it. He used the term "mangled finger." I mean, <laughs> this is that looked mangled to me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that looked like a safe fell off a five-story building on it. And, you know, he endeared himself to the fans, uh, especially, especially, you know, this season with how well he played. He was part of, if, if you two remember, our uh, conversation at the halfway point about who was the MVP of the team. Hmm. He, was, he was that important in the regular season. And yeah, to see him... To see him reach this point and do all those things that we, you know, talk about in the mythos of hot of hockey players playing for the Stanley Cup, he embodied all of it to the broken bones, to the scoring, to the defense, to the sacrifice and dedication, everything, every last thing on that checklist. It, yeah, he did it's it. like it's like Benner said. Everyone has a story, but his is just so. Great, and he does keep quiet and doesn't do a lot of media, and maybe he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. And hopefully, the Avs will recognize him with a nice big contract because he just fits this team so perfectly that he can use how well he skates on the forecheck and still create plays. Basically, played in the top six all year, scored over 50 points, I think, which is kind of crazy, even considering the scoring boom and four goals should have been five in the finals. Incredible. Like, yeah, what a performance. What I wouldn't even call him like even a depth or a complimentary player. He's just like somebody you need. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel do I feel like 
describing him as a complimentary piece is an insult at this point. He's yeah. an he's an additional weapon that you have. We 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 the shorthand for him, you know, for us is nuke. We call him a we call him nuke. He's a weapon. You can use him <laughs> in all, virtually any situation. And one and one thing we haven't mentioned is they never went back to the three-headed monster, which I was a little surprised. If you would have said at the beginning of this season, they're going to win the cup, and we all probably would have fallen over and needed a moment to recover, and then said they would be all healthy, but they did not play the three-headed monster. We'd really be like, why? Probably people would be like, oh, that's because we got some amazing player at the deadline or something. But it was like We traded for Claude Giroux. <laughs> or better, <laughs> but... Like, oh, we got Hurdle or something. Or Philip Forsberg. But anyway. I guess I'm a little yeah, surprised I... at that point. That they never put it back. They knew it worked so well. And they never put it back together. But it's because Nuke basically played on the top line. I said, I, yeah, I they, said it before. They did it, in, they, did, they did it in certain situations, but it was never a consistent thing. Right, like, sure, they would do it on an offensive zone face-off, or maybe they were losing, they went out there a little bit more. But it really wasn't that much time together. So, I, I guess that does speak to the versatility of the team, and especially Nuke, that he could have that kind of role. There was a little bit of chemistry between him and McKinnon, too. Like, it's not necessarily easy to play with him, or at least to make plays with McKinnon. And or to get him to pass to you. Yeah, <laughs> too. <laughs> I still say Bo will score more goals when people start passing to him in the offensive zone. And I don't mean a D to D or a low to high pass. I mean like an actual pass to score a goal. But that's beside the point. <laughs> but I said it with Byram and, and I'll say it uh, with Val as well. Um, it's really fun watching the national commentators sort of discover the nuances of the Avs and, you know, just seeing the way that Nichushkin was perceived once people got a look at him, you know, and the attitude was sort of like, I, I, the Dallas Stars threw this guy away twice and here he is <laughs> in, you know, conversation for the Conn Smythe Trophy with the Avalanche. Um you know, I, I just it, it's such an amazing story, like you said. Uh, you know that I, I guess I don't know that a, a team can be so wrong twice, and you know he finds his thrive here. Um, you know, it's just fantastic to see. I mean, he's everybody's favorite red carpet guy. I mean, every, we all love seeing the, the pictures of him with his <laughs> hitman face on before the games and stuff like that. Uh, it goes beyond his play on the ice. I mean, he's, he's a personality, even though he doesn't speak to the media. Uh, he just sort of, you know, I look will at say, that look. <laughs> he does love the team on Instagram. I'm not just talking about, like, after they won, that it's all love. But he was, he was a guy that would be consistently just, like, liking everything or, you know, he was just so into it, which is cool for a guy that you don't hear that much from. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, the national media, I think you need to see it just to understand, like, why is he so good or why is he so important to this team and what is it exactly that he does? Because, yeah, he did score a, a decent amount this year, but it, 
it's not scoring. It's just everything. And, and that's why I think he's earned a big contract and hopefully he gets it because they just need him. Like it's just as simple as that. Um, I mean, do you see what they talk about at the beginning of a series and it's sort of everything is in terms of, you know, the more famous teams, let's say, you know, like Nachushkin is the guy that sort of failed twice with the stars. Kadri's the guy that gets suspended at every playoffs and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, they watch a few games and they're like, you know, these guys are different. This is not what we expected. And, you know, I, I, I know it's terrible because it just points out how little they watch and know about the team, but I think it's fun as fans for us to see, you know, other people outside of Avs fandom get to know these guys and realize how special most of them are. And I really do think a lot of it is what Bednar got out of these guys. Like so many of them have had years or taken a step or the guys that have been here the whole time, like Miko and Makar, like they're basically past what their ceilings were when they were drafted. And with the draft coming up this week, you know, ceilings are pretty lofty to begin with, but for to consistently push guys beyond what was thought as their ceiling is it, not just a coincidence. So, like, Nuke is definitely one of those. I don't know. Like, he, he's obviously better than a player, a better player than he was in Dallas, and he, he will continue to be that if he goes somewhere else. But he's such a good fit here. And... You know, they molded him exactly into what they needed. And I think Bettner always said he had no confidence. So, I mean, I get why Dallas was just pretty much at their wits end. And sometimes guys need fresh start or they need someone that believes in them or someone that can help them. And so, you know, I don't put it so much on like, oh, what a great signing. So I, I, honestly, <laughs> nobody knew. I mean, <laughs> and yeah. nobody's yeah. even come forward to take credit for like, Oh yeah, you know this is why they have signed Nuke. It's because it, I mean, there's there's none of that. It was just it was one of their finds that it really blew up in a big way. Right. And, um, and, and who whoever claimed that <laughs> that was a good signing back then, you're all lying. All of you are liars <laughs> because nobody except, said was saying that except for one. Yeah, I will say except for one Nuke fan. All along. Shout out to Ivy. She she yes. was, was the only one that, you know, she was yes. the lone candle in the wind bearing the torch. So you are but, absolutely right on that. But beyond her, you were right. Nobody thought it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think we all thought it was Yakupov part two. I mean, yeah. It's just another failed reclamation project. Yeah. Everyone was- thought he was going to go to the AHL and then he'd be in Russia after Christmas. But I remember seeing him in training camp, and I was like, you know, he's not bad. Like, he's not bad enough that he's going to the AHL. I remember saying that. I was like, he's been good enough where he's going to start on this team. And, and then he just took off from there. So, so that's why I say I think the nuke story is more about just building up a person, what Bednar saw on him, the work, rather than like, oh, what a genius signing. And I think that's okay. I mean, they, these things happen all in different ways. But I, I really think that is what the nuke story is about. And what a redemption story for it is for him to go top 10 in the draft and then to 
feel like you're at such a low point and then three if someone told him four years ago he would be lifting the Stanley Cup he probably would never have believed it either or key piece like at game six you're just like oh my god new better play like <laughs> who would have thought <laughs> who would have thought that it would have been like and he's the guy we want to re-sign over everybody <laughs> who would have thought that right but yeah, it's just sometimes people need fresh start, someone to believe in them, you know, all that storybook stuff. So I guess, am I up? You are up. Okay. I In sort of the same vein as Nuke, I do think Lekkonen should get some credit here. And I know there's a lot of good names that we could mention, but just the way he stepped up like he he was in the nuke vein as someone they could play in the top six could forecheck defend well all that but the clutch ability he has and i don't think it's any coincidence like it's ridiculous (laughs) i two of the biggest goals you could ever score and he scores them and he did it for montreal too just Somebody maybe you don't notice that much offensively, but he just knows how to focus and bury his chance. I mean, the the one that they won the cup on, I mean, it was an errant pass, and he just picks it up and buries it. So, I think... Yeah, it was a hell of a shot, too. So, even though he's not, like, consistently on the score sheet, I think he's consistently working. He's, like, he's one of those guys you need. Like truly, and I wouldn't really call him a depth piece either, but more complimentary. And and you need that kind of like they need more intelligence in their forwards, and I think he's that guy as well. So that was a great idea and a great fit. I'm glad that Sack accounted Kent Hughes <laughs> for that because um they needed him. They needed a guy like Lekkonen, and hopefully he's going to stick around for a while. Yeah, I mean, I was saying before the show that, you know, I mean, the things that he did are, you know, obviously very impressive, you know, clinching the last few series and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, along with the other guys they got at the deadline, I, I don't think we saw them at what they can be. Um, and, and we probably won't with some of them, but with Lekkanen, I, I think when you give him a summer to get in Bednar shape and a training camp to sort of gel with the teammates and learn the systems and you know, not have to cram everything into a couple of weeks to learn how to play. Um, you know, I, I think he's still got a lot of upside um, that, that we'll see next year. So it, it's, it's, it was fun for me to watch just because I've watched him with Montreal for several years and, you know, it's like you know that Montreal really didn't have conditioning as a priority, and their systems are stupid, and they have a lot of bad players and things like that. And now seeing him with the Abs and knowing that, you know, he's still got these things that that they can work on with him and make him even better. Uh, I mean, it's just a, it's a fantastic trade, and you know, I I love Baron. I mean, it's it's really tough to let a player like that go, but. Um, you know, I'll enjoy watching him with Montreal, and I'm really looking forward to see what Lekkonen looks like with the Avs, you know, given a whole summer to prepare. 
Yeah, it was one of those where it's win-win. Like, I wouldn't have wanted to give him up either, but, you know, I understand. I mean, it, it feels so much better that this wasn't a rental, that, like, an in, yeah. can, depending on what kind of contract they give him, but he should be around for, like, four or five years or something like that, so definitely made it worth it. Especially after you score a Stanley Cup winning goal, I would hope you'd yeah. be around for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely where you make the flags five fly forever argument is no one's going to turn that one down. So. <laughs> but was the, was the price too high to get him at the deadline? Not anymore. <laughs> no, I think it's one of those rare win-wins. I, I think both sides are happy, which is just good. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Should I go? Yes. Well, I got a quick. I'm going to be uh, okay. Quick word on Lekkonen. I I was really impressed with how well he, how seamless he fit with the team, and just to see how because Earl, you you were spot on about him when he came over. Like, as fans are going to love him. I remember you saying that on our on the, that episode, and just seeing how well he fit in and just how good he was defensively. Cause that was kind of like, Oh, this is his, you know, kind of his calling card here. All right. I can get on board with this. And then he does that in the playoffs. Like, Oh, Earl was really right about this guy. We're really going to love him now. I like yeah, you know, seeing you, you kind of watch him and you, you kind of think he's a grinder. And then he pulls off something like that. And you're like, no, nah, he's not just a grinder. Yeah, I remember some people saying he didn't have much skill. I was like, oh, I don't know. I think he's looked better than that. Um, the the goals were so clutch. I started thinking, remember when we started when we were calling Chris Drury clutch? That's kind of the vibe I got from him. Maybe not with the level of the offensive acumen, but it to come up clutch like that. Yeah, because he had an overtime goal in St. Louis, didn't he, right? Or, or was uh, it? I know he had an overtime goal at some point during the playoffs as well. Uh, that uh, we're not, and well, of course the uh, the end about Edmonton. Um, oh, okay. I'm not, no. I'm not sure what his other goals were, but yeah, I mean that that one against Edmonton was huge. There too. are definitely eight of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which which was high on the team, right? Isn't that like third or fourth or something? I mean, eight's a lot. I mean, he's tied with McCarr. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I remember that I liked him as a pickup. I was like, oh, thank God, not a rental. And then when I saw he had the most five on five points for Montreal, and I'm like, it just sticks out, you know, with Suzuki yeah. and everyone. But it's Lekkonen that had the most. It was driving the bus at five on five. So, but. <laughs> But you're right. We don't really know what he can do. What can he do when he's fully integrated? And which is why I hope yeah. he does stick around for a few years. I mean, why not? It's not going to cost that much. You might as well give him some term. Yeah, got pals on the team now. Yeah, I know. Miko finally is a Finnish buddy. So happy. Miko doesn't have to forgot speak how to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> They're like a pair one. of shoes. Those two. <laughs> Yeah, that was great too. He goes like, "Thank God I don't speak English all the time." <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to get a quick note in on Lekkonen. So, yeah, go ahead, Earl. I'll tell you. 
okay, and I'm going to stay with the Finns and be a little controversial and say Miko Rantanen. Um, wow. I know that he started slow and was called out by the coach. Um, I think he picked it up, and I think he was very important, especially after Kadri went down, because figuring out who your second-line center is in, in the middle of a playoff run like that is difficult. And he's been sort of dabbling in that off and on over the season. Um, I, I think we saw during these playoffs a defensive side of him, and it wasn't all that consistent, but it was good enough in, in many games um, that he was able to free up McKinnon's line, let's say, at times, and, and, and play the shutdown role. Um, and I think that was really important <clears throat> just because we've seen the Avs get stuck with being a one-line team in the playoffs, especially, you know, with the constant second-round losses, you know, they, they kind of get to a point and they just can't score anymore, and then they, you know, that's it. And, and I think keeping two lines and what you were talking about with not putting the three-headed monster back together, um, they had two good lines. Even when Comfort was on it, it was relatively decent. Um, they were able to have a consistent top six that was a threat to any opponent they had. And, and I do think Miko was a big part of that. And it's, you know, you look at, you know, he's second on the team with 25 points and you're like, when did he score these points? I saw none of them. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, there was only five goals. And, and I'm sure that's uh, along with Byram, that's sort of a mystery, but um, I think I, I think history will treat his performance in the playoffs a little bit better than what's in most people's minds right now. Yeah, he did make some incredible plays. Like I remember that pass from behind the net. Was that to Nuke? I'm one of Nuke's goals. And he yeah, just does I mean, stuff like that, and it's like nobody else on this team really does that. And um, I remember his hustle. I think to get an empty net goal was that against Edmonton that was yeah. probably another one of those yeah really good moments um but yeah he didn't have one of those big signature power play goals it's kind of funny like he's so good at hitting that one timer that why wasn't he able to like he really is a good goal scorer yeah i'd say his shot is probably better than mckinnon's like probably mccarr has the best shot on the team but and, and his tipping is is fantastic, and and there were some incredible tips he made that that, that hit iron, or, or just glanced off the goalie, or, or things like that. I mean, I, again, back, I, I look yeah. at it kind of like Byram, where it's like he was robbed of several goals, you know. Yeah, and and Miko has such a good backhand too, so it is kind of funny that he wasn't able to score, but you know, either luck or whatever was going on, it, it really didn't matter. But yeah, he did have a lot of assists. Um, yeah, and I, I think kind of what he proved during these playoffs makes it such that like you're you're not shit out of luck if, if Kadri does end up leaving, which you know is probably what's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I think the fact that they've they've learned to live without having Gabe and Nate and Nico all together uh, means that you can still have two very effective 
top six lines, um, you know, whether he's the center or not. Um, yeah, I, also I think knowing kinda... that Nuke and Lekkonen can be top six mm -hmm. players also helps. Right. So, you know, I, I think it, it kind of frees up Joe Sackick from having to, to make a desperation play for, for something like that. And, um, I just think what he proved in the playoffs was a little bit more than scoring. And I think along with Nate, his defensive ability uh, was something that, you know, obviously doesn't manifest on the scoreboard. But, it, you know, I, I think he probably saved a lot more goals than he ever has in, in any other season. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really good to see how much he grew this season, grew his game and more well-rounded. So um, I think that ended up being really important, especially as the, the playoffs went on. Vlad, now to you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll have a, a taste of, I'll, I'll, I'll have a taste of humble pie because I was, I, I was beginning to have some doubts about, about Biko. Uh, through the through the playoffs and into the into the conference final, so uh, you don't always need to score goals to be effective, but you you can have a good. It's like the Paul Stastny thing when he was here, having that division and to be able to create plays, and that's what uh, Rantanen was doing. Uh, and he had a, he racked up a good amount of points as we've already mentioned, and to have those uh, the ability to generate those sorts of places set up his teammates does really highlight his importance in yeah. uh, in this run that the Az have had. I just think it's hilarious when you see people, you know, in, in the game threads and they're just like, oh Miko's is terrible, he's awful tonight, and yada and it's like here he is. He's got twenty five points second on the team. Um you know Maybe all of them were really unimportant points and late in games that didn't matter. I, I kind of doubt it, but um, you know, he just finds a way to contribute. That seemed to be a go-to catchphrase over the last couple of months. <laughs> it's funny. When, it's funny when they say it, and then you like hear it all the time. <laughs> You're like, oh, maybe is that where it came from? I swear to God, there was one interview where Makar dropped it like three times. And I'm like, is he doing this just to like do it? Or <laughs> wasn't Tampa saying it too? I think John Cooper said it one time. Yeah. He was like, hey, wait a minute. That's our hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it was and cute. Don't go, how why they not us on it either? <laughs> I think it was cute how they turned find a way to found a way. Yeah, that was yeah. celebration stuff. <laughs> so that was actually a nice little touch. <laughs> yeah, that was brilliant. My my next star is going to be kind of a no brainer. Uh, it's the the one, the only, the Norris Trophy winner, the Con Smythe winner. It's Kale McCarr. Yes. Yeah, he's no doubt star. He's three stars of everything: season, team, life, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. 
he's just such a special, special player. It's it's really cool that we have him. Just so unique, such a great guy to root for. Um, just everything. Like at this point, like we said before, he's basically on a Hall of Fame track. You know, they're gonna put his number in the rafters, which I think is an interesting other aside. You know, after you win a cup, you got to start thinking about. How many of these numbers are going up there? Um, but Macars should for sure. Uh, Ask me after the yeah. third cup in a row. <laughs> 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 I do think that is a, is, you know, maybe a topic for another day. But you know, what exactly is a dynasty? What? And he even sort of had that that catchphrase that the media even liked. They're like, oh, we didn't even think about that. When he dropped the whole, like, they're looking for a dynasty. We're looking for a legacy. They were just all like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> it's so good. We used it in our yep. podcast today. <laughs> yeah. They're all like, yeah, we're going to use that one. So, um, yeah, just with, there's nothing more you can say about Macar. Just, so cool. Yeah, so I mean, cool he, to watch. Great he was events. another guy that I remember after the first two games of, of the Tampa series and, and Mark Messier was just like, oh my God, I love this guy. And, you know, it, it's just great to, to see people discovering um, what they should have been watching all season. But, um, you know, finally figuring out, you know, what exactly makes him so great? Because it's like you can stat graze and see like, wow, he, you know, he scored a lot of points this year and he's in the Norris Trophy conversation and all kinds of accolades and things like that. But just, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of, of what makes him so effective, what makes him so special, it's, you know, it, it's a joy to see dodgy old guys like that, uh, you know, figure it out. And it, it's like what I said, even though they were the garbage time goals when he scored the shorthanded one, it was just like, it's because he got fired up, you know, targeting him and just, just that you could witness that you saw just how he can just change the game like that. And that's yeah, something I know I he looks loved. like howdy duty, but he's not nice all the time. <laughs> no. How many, how many people were pl- clutching their pearls in game five? After he got slashed on the hands by Victor Hadman, and he turns oh. to the ref, and you're an effing joke. See, I thought he said, "Where's the fucking call?" Um, and, and I realize it's you know I'm not a good lip reader and all that, but <laughs> you know, either way, <clears throat> yeah, he is not nice all the time. I know he looks nice; he just looks like the kid next door that mows your lawn and stuff like that. But you know. <laughs> That, that's just not... He can be mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure that's not the first time he's yelled. Maybe the first time he got it on camera. But it's just... Um, you know, he had a lot... It, you go back and think of... You know, he had a lot of big hits during the playoffs. Um, I forget who it was. I think he injured a couple people, too. Um, you know, it's like he's... You know, he, he's a complete player. He's, he's not just all skill. I mean, he's... He's physical. He has it all. I like the wit about him, too. Like, if you really listen to him, like, he drops these little witty things, and you're just like, but he can get away with it because no one really kind of either stops to think or questions it. But I don't know. 
I like that about him too. <laughs> yeah, he has a good dry wit. Uh, he kind of reminds me of uh, Matt Kenseth being a NASCAR driver. It's like Kenseth would say something like that, and the media wouldn't either realize what he said until ten minutes later or or what. But it's just it's, it's very dry. You kind of have to think about it. So it's that makes it fun. And we, you know, we've talked about how, you know, you know, how great of a player he is, and especially is when, you know, we had the conversation conversation earlier on in, in this episode today. But I want to kind of circle all the way back to the uh, draft lottery in 2017 when the Avs hit their lowest point. And I remember watching that draft lottery live with a few folks locally. Uh, and when the Avs wound up uh, with the fourth overall pick and how devastated the fan base was that we lost out on drafting number one. And it turned out to be, of course, the pick that would be turned into, into Kale. And how much Sackick was raked over the coals about that pick. And who is this guy? He's playing in this junior league in Canada. And then he goes to, to you know, UMass, UMass uh, uh, I'm trying to fight the urge to say UMass Hamster. UMass <laughs> Amherst, Amherst. Amherst. Yeah. And anyway, well, why, we, there was just so many questions of why him? Why that pick? Why is he going to that school? Why did he stay another year? Why isn't he coming over? Why didn't they bring him up? And then he yeah. goes and... Here he is five years later, and we're like, of course, he knew what was right for him. And Oh, my gosh. I, I could do a whole podcast on the car story. I remember so much about, um, yeah, just the whole process and the reactions and the thinking and everything. It, it really is sort of a, like Benner said, everybody has a story. It's just, it is how, his rise to greatness i guess nothing short of meteoric for him yeah for where he, you know for for this you know for him you know being selected at you know fourth overall ahead of these you know guys that were supposed to have all the hype he's patrick heiskinen and it's kale that's just outshone all of them coming into that, you know, first game against Calgary in, in the 19 playoffs and he scores his first ever goal on his, you know, on his first shift. I remember seeing that live and I described it on this podcast as artistry. <laughs> well, I remember it was a bit of a hot take to see he was better than Heiskanen and I maintained that. I know I remember I'd say that on Discord like Heiskanen's a really good player and you know, it's too bad he plays for Dallas, but no, there, there's nothing wrong with Dallas that take took him. Like they, I'm, they're over the moon about the guy they took, but and still are, and they, as they should be. But it it was still saying something to say. No, I still like McCarr better. I still think he's going to be better. And it was like, you know, Heiskanen was so good and his rookie year and blah blah blah. And so there was even doubts. You know, several years into it, let's just say, and and now, like nobody's going to argue against 
Norris winner, Con Smythe winner. I think he's kind of proved his point now, but it was a long time coming. It took every bit of those five years, I'd say, to really, you know, prove that that he is the best player in that draft, best defenseman on the planet, maybe even best player on the planet. Bar none. I mean, he deserved that Con Smythe. He deserves that Norris. All the praise and accolades he's getting, he rightly earned. And it speaks a lot to his character, how he downplays it all. And the chance of MVP, even at the parade, he pulls over <laughs> Devon Taves and he points to, he credits his D partner. I mean, that's, that's not just a good, that's not just a good player. That's a remarkable person and a class act human being all the way. And Ben, you know, as you said already, everybody's got a story in which Bedner shared well, briefly at the parade, but <laughs> I mean, how can you not root this guy? And those that don't know are asking the question, how did three other teams pass on him? It's like... Yeah, and that goes into the story. And maybe, maybe it would be worth it to really get into the nuance of it one of these days. Maybe we can get together for a summer chat or something because I really do think a lot of these little things should be explored and, and really appreciated since... And, you know, this is just the beginning of his career, but there is a certain bit of, like, you know, finish line in a way of, like, elite, that he's made it to this level. And it just to really appreciate the journey, what it took to get there. Is it and up to me now? <laughs> Someone to say? Yeah, I, th I think you're up again. Give us another one. Um, you know, the Lekkonen one was maybe a little off the board, even though I still stand behind it, but I'm going to go with somebody. You took one of the, the obvious ones. I'm, I brought it up earlier. I, I do think Kadri deserves a lot of recognition and he probably would have been on my Con Smythe ballot. So, um, he was really part of the story of this team, this championship, what he was able to do, you know, the, the heroic moments, the coming back from the broken, I mean, it really was like a broken hand, basically. And the adversity overcame, I mean, what he did in the Blues series to turn all that hate into a hat trick. And I think he gave them something, you know, they talk about how he brought that swagger, the confidence, the, the attitude that he has. I think that is something they needed. And kind of help them believe and, and carry that swagger with them into the games and such like that. And even though he missed a few of the games, I do think he really was like one of the catalysts and one of the most important players on this team. So I'm going to give my final start to Kadri. Yeah, I, you, I think I think you hit it on the head as far as having that attitude. Um. That that's just something that was really missing before he came to the Avalanche, um, you know. And a lot of people treat that as sort of a negative, um, and I, I don't think it is at all, at least anymore. I think in his time in Colorado, I I think he's found a way to focus that and and keep that swagger, but to focus it in a productive way uh, that he wasn't able to do as much in Toronto. Um, and it, 
I think his regular season just spoke for itself as far as being just a fantastic show. Um, and maybe that's but, where Bednar comes in too. That yeah. Got him to this I mean, point. Because even last year wasn't that good for him. Like the guy had what, 37 points? Like there's a reason why he's he needs to kind of cash in on this. Like I really do think like this is who he is, but I mean, when you go from 37 points to 80-something is is something for sure. Well, especially the way it happened. He just dropped off the table in the second half of the season. You're just like, you know, that's rough. And, you know, what whatever they got together and did over the summer, um, I, mean, I, I don't know if it's Bednar or one of the other coaches or, or maybe even a combination of that plus, you know, something on the outside, but um, I think he was. I, I don't. I don't think his new contract sure. was as much of a motivation as wanting to be he, he wanted, part of a yeah. successful team and to be a, you know, a, a big contributor on. Oh yeah, and I, he just made think, it happen. I think proving people wrong is a big motivator for him, which is fine. Like it, everyone's motivated by different things, and. I think it was that he wasn't able to finish this the playoffs last year, and I, I do think that motivated. He wanted to prove that he's an important piece, and that. It, and I was never worried. That's the funny thing is, it's all about this narrative about how he's gonna be a liability, and I just honestly I didn't even think of like he's gonna be the guy that's just gonna do something dumb. I, it was never something that I thought of. Like that does not define his abs tenure at all. But you know, mm-hmm. I, I think the baggage did fuel him, and and that was part of it too. Yeah, I mean, he was he was probably the guy that, that had my favorite celebration with the cup. Um, I mean, he just <laughs> he looked so happy, and it it wasn't even just relief. Like he he was just so happy that. He finally got there. Um, you can tell it's just something that, that maybe the dream is just a bigger part of his subconscious than, than maybe some other guys. I mean, and that's not saying everybody doesn't want it really bad. I'm just saying that, that for Nas, this is just really, really special. And it, it was comment about you know, people that didn't believe in him can kiss his ass. That was, that was my favorite comment after the game. <laughs> <clears throat> um, you know, and it, it's it's really tough to to consider, you know what what he gives up by leaving, um, and, and it would be a lot. But I, I think he's really grown as a, as a person as a, and as a player here. And it's just it, it's it's really tough to leave that behind. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see just sort of how serious it gets between the Avs and him this postseason. I just, I don't think they can get anywhere close to what he's looking for. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think the irrational exuberance of what we're going through this week after winning the Cup, you know, it's easy to say, like, well, they could be close. Um, but again, I, I just, I, I think if you're Kadri, you're looking at it like, am I going to be this guy somewhere else? Um, I think they've all got to think about that. I Maybe yeah. some a little bit more than others, but... 
I mean, yeah, it's one thing just leaving a team that you enjoy, but it's also like, what, what are you going to be doing on another team? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, who are you going to be doing it for? I mean, yeah. I, I think it's, it's become really clear how much, um, and I think Bednar is a huge part of this, but it, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the organization goes into this. So, yeah, I mean, if he leaves, big. I'm not going to be mad at him. Like, not at all. I think we we all figured this was going to be it, and then when he started scoring like that, and and you know. He deserves to have that recognition of of a big contract like that, and um, he'll probably be choosy about his spot. But you know, if that's something that you can do for your family and for your legacy, and you know, that's part of it too. So, so that's fine. I'm sure he will leave with the heavy heart. I think all these guys will, but I think he will because he he was so appreciated here, fit in, and. It's going to be hard for him, I think. It was hard when he left Toronto. I know he's an emotional guy, and um, he felt like Toronto was his place, and, it, and he didn't want to be traded. And it obviously was the best thing that happened to him, not only because of the cup, but like you said, he needed to grow as a person. I, I think Benar coaching helped, maturity helped, you know, all that kind of stuff. Being around maybe a different group of guys and. Like, he would have never come here. Even if he was a free agent, like, you know he would have never, ever, ever signed in Colorado. No. And and it, <laughs> maybe that was eye-opening. It, it was just someplace. Like, I don't think he was mad when he was traded here, but he probably didn't know a whole lot about the Avs. They were like, well, they have McKinnon, so. Just like everyone else on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Like, oh, yeah, I know Nate. It'd be probably be pretty cool to play with him. But other than that, he probably was like, what am I doing here? And so, you know, yeah, like I said, I'm sure he'll leave with the heavy heart, but I also do kind of feel like it's something he's going to have to have to do. And I think that uh, there, there are, there are things that you can attempt to put a dollar amount on and it's that, that dollar figure changes for, everybody because everybody's situation is different. Do you put a higher price on the contract? Do you put a higher price on winning? Do you put a higher price on um, providing for your, you know, your legacy and your family? Do you pr uh, provide, uh, do you put it on a good situation? And he's the one, I don't envy his situation at all, but uh, to try to make that decision, but then again, if I just want a Stanley Cup, then maybe I'm not thinking about that right now. <laughs> so, but I think he hit on a great, you know, all those great points about it is going to be with a heavy heart no matter what he does. Does he leave that money on the table to stay here in Denver? Does he, because uh, he knows he can win here and it's a good situation given how the Avs have treated him as an organization and how they stuck by him after the suspension uh, in uh, the previous uh, playoff round with St. Louis uh, and how well the fans welcomed him after uh, the, uh, the ugliness that St. Louis showed him. I can probably guarantee that he may not sign in St. Louis, but yeah. you never know. You never I mean, know. There's probably, yes. few, no, there's probably a few teams that he's like 
don't even nope he's probably tell his agent just don't even bother (laughs) (laughs) but honestly i think he has to i mean his age like usually you're looking at guys that are maybe 27 28 ufa like this is really it like he's you really can't make the argument like okay sign with the abs for maybe three years four years and then go get paid like he's just not going to like it's pretty much now or never and if he if someone out there is really going to give him like nine million over seven years or anything close to that he's got to take it i mean i yeah. tell him to take it even as an abs fan it's just like i it means a lot for him to be thought of in that echelon that he's one of the top two free agents, you know, it's Goudreau and him and Philip Forsberg. And he's just not going to leave that on the table. That's, and that's okay. But you just can't, I would tell him, don't do it. If you can get that kind of money, what you can do for your family, your foundation, you know, I wish it was here, but it's just not going to happen. And if that's what ultimately plays out, I mean, the Avs fans gave him just an absolute baller send off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be he hard did. to play against him, but you know, that's okay. Not everyone's meant to stay forever. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> Some stories end faster than others. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think Kadri is an, ex- an excellent choice for, for the star, I mean, and not just for the game for overtime winner, but how well he handled that ugliness against St. Louis and just how well he performed throughout. I mean, it, it's a great final uh, few lines potentially for his story here. But if there is going to be another. If there's going to be a sequel, I don't think Avs fans would have any concern of that as long as it didn't prevent them from re-signing Michushkin or losing out on some other ways to use that uh, their cap for McKinnon or whomever. So then you're up, Earl, your last star. Okay. I'm going to go a little off the board, but I think this is a good one. Um, I'm going to go with Eric Johnson. Wow. Um, and I can't say that, that he stood out every game or even in a lot of games, but you know, just when he was uh, talking to, I think, Emily Kaplan after, after the game and just talking to her about how he never thought, he thought at one point he was not going to be able to play hockey again. And it was only... You know, about a year ago when he started feeling good enough that he thought he might be able to come back. Um, and just what he's done this whole season and, and throughout the playoffs, number one, stay healthy. Uh, that's not something he was able to do as a young man. Uh, but I, I, I know, think it was kind the of a miracle. He, yeah. And making it through a whole playoff run. Um you know, I, I just I, I think we all were just waiting for EJ to, to shatter into a million pieces at any time over the regular season, and then it didn't happen. 
and again into the playoffs. And you know, he played all twenty games. Um, I, I think what he gave to the team was, you know, a, a good veteran defensive defenseman's uh, kind of performance. Um, and he was just the happiest guy in the world. And it wasn't just winning the cup; it was being able to to make it through, you know, a hundred games of the season after thinking your career might be over. And I think that's really special just to see a guy um, not only just be able to come back and play and live out the dream, but, you know, he ends up with a championship with it too. Um, And I I think that's what was motivating him throughout the season and throughout this whole playoff run. And, um, you know, he wasn't as bad as, as he could have been. I know that's not a ringing endorsement, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> my uh, yeah, my husband would disagree. He'd always be like, "Oh my god, what's he, what's I mean, six doing out there?" And I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something not as bad as 42." Um, <laughs> that's that's kind of the way I look at it. He's kind of the best of the rest of the defensemen, uh, and I, I think they needed that. You know, I, I think they needed um, maybe not spectacular, but he was steady. And it, it was just great to see. He's been one of my favorite players. I, I think he's got one of the best personalities on the team. And obviously, everyone on the team loves him. So I was just really happy for him. And I'm, I'm really glad to see him, you know, be able to, to win the cup on the ice. Yeah. And when you talk about pure joy, I mean, yeah. Just he was just so happy, so happy just for everything, just to share it with guys like Landy and the rest of the team, and just be a part of it, soak it in. Just never thought he'd get there. You know, he talked about being last so many times. You know, basically bottomed out three times with him on the team, and just it is crazy to think about just getting here even as us as fans and then for him having to live it and the injuries and yeah those are the guys that you're happy for everybody for different reasons but you know just yeah, to like see he gets, that he's he gets my playoff hard. master 10 award for sure yeah. <laughs> i'd throw bow in there too but yeah um and we'll see what he does. I think he's going to come back. I mean, you, like you said, he had a healthy season. If he still feels okay. Yeah. I mean, why? the reasons he wasn't able to play are, are not there. Um, yeah, know, I'm sure I, he's beat I, up like A lot like of people everybody. think he's going to retire. And if he did retire, I mean, do it Elway style and just say, peace out. I got the cup. You know, that's not a, a terrible way to end your career. Um, no, and, and maybe several guys are thinking that. But it's just, you know, he's just not an old guy that finally got the cup. Like, this is his team, his people, Landy. You know, I don't, I don't really see how you could just walk away from that, especially you have a contract, you know. you're. I'm sure he's beat up like everybody else, but as far as we know, he's not one of the, the walking half-dead. 
and he doesn't have to rehab this summer. He feels good. Why not give it a try? Yeah. Um, and it's $6 million. It's <laughs> $6 million. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I know it would be a lot easier if he just said, you know, forget it. You don't have to pay me. No cap it. No nothing. Yeah, that'd be great. But, um, you know, I, I don't think Joe Sack is, you know, is the kind of guy that, that would advise him to do that. So, yeah, I expect him back. And they are going to need defensive depth. He can still play. Um, yeah. If if he does get injured, you know, at that point, it's probably, you know, maybe he'll make the decision. Like, it's, I'm just not going to be able to rehab this and and walk away. But um, it's his team. Like, what? Why would he not want to be a part of the, continue to be part of the journey? Right. And if they win the cup next year and he's you know plays all hundred games or whatever it ends up. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised for him to take you know, Jack Johnson deal the, the year after just to see if they can three him. Maybe. I mean, yeah, it would have to be less at that point. But <laughs> um, <laughs> at some point, you do have to cut the cord. And and I think he, he does have his horses and his in different aspects of his life to get to. But, yeah, it's hard to walk away. Like, like some guys just know it's time and they're ready. Other guys... It's not. It, it's hard because once you close that chapter of your life, it's not like you can go back to it. But, you know, a few guys unretire, but, you know, when you say you're done, it's not like you get a do over. So I wouldn't take yeah. anyone retiring lightly. Not at all. I remember after the Avs traded for him back in 2011. In the middle and, of the night. Yeah, in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> and his I watched both of his his interviews what ended up being his last interview as a you know after the trade with St. Louis when St. Louis media interviewed him and how much he said he was going to miss being part of the of the blues and all that but what I remember more than that is his first press conference with the Avs and he said, I'm going to make St. Louis regret trading Eric Johnson. And that always stuck with me. And that always was something that was. It, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like something you would hear Patrick Waugh say in his yeah. in his media once upon a time. And. It took a it took a while for Eric Johnson to reach this point, and uh, what stood out for me with him, and and as you touched on this earlier, Earl, with how you focused on Naz and his cup celebration, we all think about the the handoff with Sackick to Bork in one but I thought the handoff with. EJ and Landy, how they both held the cup together and just stared each other down like this is bromance, per, you know, to the <laughs> nth degree right here, where it's like Landy kept his, you know, he kept his word to him that you're getting the cup first. And they both shared those 
in those few seconds together holding the cup, just like that's that was just like pure brotherhood, friendship, love, however you want to describe it. I thought that was probably so pure and just so ah, so heartwarming. And after everything he had gone through in his career with the knee injury, with the golf cart in St. Louis, and then coming here and all the losing seasons, all the criticism, all the doubt, all the worry of concern. Am, am I ever going to make it? And he said so outright. And Jackie touched upon this, that he wasn't sure it would ever happen for all of that, to, all that sacrifice and all of the years and injuries and everything he had to fight through to have this season to be paired with Bo and have a good connection with him on the ice. And I, I liked his line with about, you know, Bo, you know, some guys takes 15 years for us to get to a cup final. He's only played like 30 some odd games. <laughs> <laughs> but they needed him. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I think- I, it felt great to see him gate that cup around. And I thought, I wonder if he remembers that press conference where he said, I'm going to make them regret trading Eric Johnson. Hmm. And to where he is now, it's like no regrets, I'm sure, on EJ's part now that everything he went through is validated. Yeah, I don't really remember when he was traded because I, I wasn't deeply Awake. involved then. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it must have been very difficult as a first overall. You know, you. You probably see yourself as face of the franchise, huge part of the organization that they did trade him. And I, and I agree with you about this handing him the cup first. Like that's what I was hoping for. And I know a lot of people were hoping for that, that, yeah. um, his Cogliano, I guess technically you should have been the guy cause he'd been around the longest, but you know, EJ just, been around so long with this team and and I love that story that Landy told him years ago I'm giving you the cup first even back when they weren't good and he's just like oh come on (laughs) and and seeing that through yeah that's that's a really cool story I also liked how they sat on the bench together long after you know, that's probably something both those guys will remember for a long time. I think it's up to your final star, Vlad. I've waited so long for this. My last star. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. It's Darcy Kemper. We knew it was coming. <laughs> 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 10 and 4 in the postseason. He had two overtime wins in the cup final, a shutout, and an assist on a game winning goal in game four. Allowed one goal in the cup clinching game. And I, I, I said this all season long, so this is nothing new for anybody who's listened to this podcast. I've always backed him. I've always been in his corner. Yes, I did scratch him once, but (laughs) I've always said he's going to be it. I have faith in Darcy Kemper, and 
for all of the criticism that I saw online, all the all the vitriol, all the negativity, everything that I saw that made my eyes go crossed for the little spoonful of humble pie that I ate for for Miko Rantanen. There's a whole pie factory out there for everybody who doubted him. He is a Stanley Cup champion. I know people didn't believe it given the price that we paid to get him. And he played in Arizona and it's just like the Kale McCarr effect. Who is Darcy Kemper? Nobody watches Arizona. But for all the criticism that he took and the doubt, even after the regular season that he had, and yeah, he, you know, Frank was a big part of that regular season, just like Frank was a big part of the playoffs. Darcy Kemper was just, he was better and statistically better than Andre Vasilevsky in, in the final. What more, what more do people need to know about him? And he did this all after he got the, he had, he had the eye injury. And people were wondering, like, how good is he with the eye? How, what's the eye like? And we found out, good God, what happened? <laughs> we didn't know how bad it was. And then it was bad. It was real bad. Yeah, the yeah, whole Vlad, eye you... thing was crazy. <laughs> yeah, Vlad, you and I were talking before the show about this. And, you know, a lot of people are pointing out, oh, you know, he's, he's a, a terrible goalie, one of the worst goalies to ever win the Cup. And, um, you know, the Avs won in spite of him and things like that. <clears throat> and, you know, I get our reliance on statistics kind of shapes how we view I think goalies get it worse than most just because all defensive stats are basically team stats. Um, you know, and it, it's just, it's very hard to separate saves made because of talent versus saves made because of system and team and things like that. So it, it's really hard to say, you know, this guy did this, but he gave up that, and that's why I think he's bad. Um, when you get to the playoffs and especially past round two, the only thing that really matters is wins. And, you know, he was able to do that. Um, you know, there is one bad game. He got pulled and he came back the next night and got an overtime win. So I agree that he should be a star. Um, I'm not saying that someone else couldn't have done it, but he did it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have named him a star for me, but um, I agree he deserves the credit. He was the guy that did it. I mean, they all get credit. Like, every single person on the team contributed in some way. Like, it's like the butterfly effect. You can't can't remove him from the success of the team and it's true a, a lot of those goals against were bad defensive breakdowns really bad turnovers things like that and um and the abs themselves don't lend to good goalie statistics they don't give up shots they don't give up quality that's certainly part of it too um Overcoming Josh the Manson plays for the abs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Overcoming the eye injury. So it did sound like it was bothering him during the Blues series, which 
You know, I'm a little surprised that they wanted to play a goalie that was struggling. And then especially after game five. Um, but yeah, they believed in him. He was their guy. Bedner very much wanted to play his team, the guys that he wanted on the ice. And it sounded like when he was out in the Edmonton series in that week before they started the final, that's when he was really like training the eye and getting the rehab and everything. And, and um, it did sound like it was caused because of swelling. Like when he would look down, it would press more from the eyelid or something. So that, that does sound kind of crazy, but it does sound like he, he at least is not dealing with, with it during Tampa. So it's good that he's he was able to recover and um yeah I mean he got the job done so you can't you can't argue with those kind of results he had better numbers than Vasilevsky of course in wins won the series had a point nine oh eight save percentage even after the blowouts and this is all coming from our good pal AJ of DNVR uh Kepper had a four and two record, 0.908 save percentage. Vasilevsky two and four, point point nine oh five. Better, it's close, but still a better save percentage. And then after the blow, it's a game two and three. Again, very close. Vasilevsky won one, lost two, had a point nine three three save percentage. Kemper, of course, two and one, point nine three four. It was a close series, but he outdueled the best goalie in the league. And that's what they needed. That's exactly what they needed. So it's okay to be critical. It's okay to be, uh, uh, you know, miffed at the, uh, it, 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 you know, it's okay to not, you know, you know, to be unhappy with your goaltender giving up what could be perceived as a soft goal. Uh, make a save, I think, is what we've seen a lot. We saw that a lot with Grubauer. We saw it a lot with Varley. We saw it now with the the soft goals for both Frank and with Kemper. But as Earl said, wins are what counts. And he got the wins. Yeah. I mean, he he did ju- just what was needed. I, I guess I think it's kind of, I guess, disingenuous to say the people that think that you know, Frank couldn't have done it. Like, Frank was clearly worse. You know, I think they were fairly similar. And yeah. and Frank did a lot. You know, he didn't even lose. But, um, but, you know, obviously Darcy was their guy. He'd been their guy all year. You know, Bednar was thinking about taking him out of the net. I'd say when you knew he was struggling with the eye, you really should have maybe thought about it. <laughs> but... um. <laughs> You know, I understood that they were going to go back to him to start the Tampa series, and it was the right call. You know, I maybe they could have thought about about it in Game Four to give Frank a try, but I also understand, like, if you want to say you win as a team, you lose as a team. Then, you know, he he was a driving the ship for them, and and he deserved to see it through. And I'm very glad he was able to succeed. And as Bender has done with everybody that kind of struggles, he made it less about pointing the finger at Kemper uh, and saying, you know, the whole team was bad in game three. 
Which they were. It definitely was not all on him. And uh, he trusts his guys. And I think that led them to this point, that led them to a championship. I think it did hurt them against Vegas. There were a lot of reasons why they lost to Vegas, but you know, you just he just rolls with it. You know, he has his hand and he's gonna play that hand and he he's either gonna trust that it wins or it won't. And in some way it's a little scary. It's admirable and it obviously worked this time, so you can't really disagree with it. But I think that way everyone knows where they stand and I think that helps too. Yeah. I just think it's tough when you criticize a goalie, you know, like in Kemper's situation in game three <clears throat> and, and saying that Vasilevsky did <laughs> much worse in the previous game. Um, you, you look at that and you're, you should be more apt to say, like, this is how the series is going. Um, you know, we had – like we said before, you know, in the first four games, you had two overtime games, you had two blowouts. Um, and you're just looking at that, like, you know, your, your job as a team is to be ahead of that, and they were. And Tampa was not pointing the finger at Vasilevsky. So why, why should Avs fans point the finger at Kemper for that blow? It just, it just seemed weird. I mean, it's probably history, wow. A, that Vasilevsky had won at that point. Yes. Hadn't he won the Vezina as well at some point? Yeah. And <laughs> you know what I mean, the, the track record, the right. history of, of the type of goalie that, that he is, and I guess the, the trust, right? Like, you trust a guy that has that kind of track record, but on this team, like I said, you know, Bednar trusted him. But that's all you need, right? Like maybe you didn't he didn't necessarily have the trust of the fans, but he had the nope. trust of the guy making the decision. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that's perfectly okay. Like, you know, if you see something you don't like, it's perfectly all right to be critical of it. It just, you know you gotta look at the big picture too. And we'll see as well. That's another decision coming up. How much do they want to invest in bringing him back? Definitely going to be very interesting. Yeah. I would say that there's pretty high interest on both sides. Kemper uh, clearly enjoyed playing here. He had a very successful regular season. Both he and Frank had a, an undefeated uh January, with the exception of one goofball overtime loss in Nashville, they set a record in front. You know, in you know points, they won a Stanley Cup. How how would you not want to be a part of that? Especially after the journey he was on, starting in Minnesota, and then you know playing in LA for five seconds before going down to the desert and having to stand on his head. When they always say he was former Kings goaltender, I'm always like, what? <laughs> but and maybe you'll appreciate this story, Vlad. I remember you we playing Minnesota in that game in January that I went to. And 
you know, they were just, there were a couple Minnesota fans around me and they were just like heckling him. Like, there's only reason why you're in a one year deal. And I'm like, traded for him. Like, what? What are you guys even talking about? <laughs> like, and he was the goalie that eliminated the abs in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was weird. It was weird their perspective of like, he's only here because we don't want him. I'm like, I. I don't really think that's how it went down, but <laughs> so you can feel extra satisfaction for those folks. Former Minnesota Wild goalie wins Stanley Cup. Play <laughs> <laughs> <Great> hockey, baby. <laughs> Again, watching him in Arizona, I knew he had he had the, the skill set to be a good goalie, and just to see the skepticism that came with the trade it's like no nah, we'll see well you'll 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 see i'm not saying this is my i told you so moment but it kind of is my i told you so moment <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't necessarily sure it would turn into this but i'm so glad it did yeah i i just think if you look at sackett's tenure and his relationship with goalies you know he's had a lot of goalies that have played fairly well. I mean, if you look at Varley and, and Bernie and Ruby and Kemper and Frank, I mean, they've all played well for the Avs and um, You know, and it, it, you just look at it like they don't want to get in a situation where they have to have someone putting up you know, a, a normal Vasilevsky uh, performance to get a cup. You know, they, they want to make it so that if your goalie just plays as good as the, as the opponent goalie, then you're going to win. Um, and they, you know, and that's what happened. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that the year that they finally win the cup is the first year that um, both their starter and their you know, second starter, if you want, um, are both healthy and able to play. At the end of the final game, yeah, that was a big miracle too. Because I mean, it's a huge miracle. It's never <laughs> happened. I mean, and they actually didn't. I mean, if like Frank was on one leg and Annan was backing up, I just don't think that it was going to happen. You know, no. Um, and they didn't buy a third goalie at the deadline. First time ever. Remember how grim it was in December when every everybody started, you know, getting shelved from COVID and we had Kemper get scratched because of injury and it was JoJo in goal and he got blitzed in Toronto. Yeah. And then Annan had to play. <laughs> yeah, it was on that same road trip to play in Philly. Yeah. I mean, Annan had a good season, but did not want to see that in the cup final. <laughs> he had to lift, lift the cup. Which is good for him. It was interesting they let Magna and McDonald. And, it was, and they did have practice with the team and everything. So I'm sure they did all the meetings and practices. So they were part of the team. But I, I always kind of thought, you know, just 
what that kind of felt like for them. You know, like you're lifting the cup, but he's really playing. Really didn't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Magna played 20 games in the first part of the season, so they've done that. Sure, and McDonald did too. So it wasn't like somebody that had done nothing, but or also like Brian Murray, you know, if we're just kind of talking about things that surprised us. Like, he was one of the, I mean, he was in, like, the first 10 guys to lift it. Like, I forget who handed it off to him. I'm like, wow, <laughs> why is he there in the line? <laughs> and he, he was part of the team. Like, I get it. I expect his name to be on the cup, too. But I guess I am a little surprised that he never played. But I know I've said it so many times in this podcast and Discord. You know, Vendor doesn't like him. Like, remember when the playoffs started, everyone thought, you know, EJ's either going to, like, break or get scratched, like, two games into it, and we'll see Murray. And, like, this goes back to the whole Bednar picked his team, and he's going to play it until he's forced not to. But I would have played him maybe even at least as a seventh. One, I mean, I know once you get to the cup final, you're not there to do any favors. You're there to win. But... Like, someone had gone down, he would be playing. And he would have been playing completely cold. Like, yeah, like if four months give, cold. <laughs> if they had given him a token um, start, let's say in game three, that's when Berkey and Kadri didn't play, you know, as a seventh D, would that made a little bit more sense? But... You know, I'm Maybe obviously they might not. Have won that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, obviously, you're not going to second guess anything. I'm just saying, I was a little surprised they didn't find some way to get him on the ice. Because, like I said, he, not to just be nice, but like he was the next in line if he needed to play somebody. And if you're looking at like game five and you're going to win the cup and you need a defenseman to dress, I think, I think he would have wished he had a little something under the belt at that point, but I'm glad it didn't matter. They never had to get desperate and play Magna. You know, they had just enough bodies to come in and play. Nobody on the defense got hurt after Sam. So in that way, like those things did kind of break fortunate for them as well like i don't want to call it lucky because a lot of the stuff isn't luck but you do need several things that kind of go your way over the course of this whole thing yeah i mean they were very fortunate engines burkowski and kadri obviously were the bad ones like cogliano obviously had a somewhat less bad injury but i mean when you hear surgery and then he's back right away you're like wow um, yeah, he was another unsung hero. I mean, we didn't talk about him and Helm. Like, for for the old dudes that they just brought in as, like, fourth liners, you know, both of them did play really well. And Yeah, I mean, I think Cogliano you know was, was probably the, the guy that was the most in shape for what he had to do. Um, you know, like, if... Say they decide to bring him back, like he's not going to have a problem getting into bed, Jake. Like he might be there already. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if he comes back. I think any of those guys, if they want to come back on a one year deal, fine. 
Like at this point, there should be zero reason to term any bottom six, even if they have to go out and get someone on the market. I mean, if you don't want to come join the party on a one-year term, then they'll find somebody else. But I wouldn't yeah, mind. It just sounded like Pogliano had a, a fairly profound effect for a short time there. Um, yeah, like I hook. saw a lot of of like celebrations between him and McKinnon, and maybe maybe he was another kind of guy that maybe calmed McKinnon down a little bit. And then, of course, that speech before Game Six, like you know, that's part of the legend too. <clears throat> yeah, and, and Newhook was talking about, you know, what a what an influence he was on him, and you know, again, that just seems weird. Like the dude got here with like ten games left in, in the playoffs. Um, so yeah, I'd just, like to know, see like, for a guy like Newhook, back. who's you know a, a marginal rookie. Um, it sounds like that helped a bunch. So yeah, everyone had a part one way or the other. And that's just how you want it. You want to feel like they couldn't have done it without so-and-so and XYZ. And, and that's why it's so cool to see all of them celebrate. Because you know, you're rooting for the whole team collectively and everybody as individuals. And that's even something, let's extend it to the coaching staff that Bednar mentioned at the parade. He went down the list of all the coaches that uh, don't get talked about, plus Bennett, plus Pratt, to do all the heavy lifting uh, to help them do their job and be successful. And that was... uh, as much as it is the performance of the players on the ice, that was really cool to see Bednar not just make it about the guys, uh, the, the team, but also about his staff. I think that's been something that's been impressive about the team of the year is they had a lot of great players, but you know we've, we've said this on and on on this podcast that they play different than everyone else. And that's, you know, that's not something that's just organic out of uh, having guys like that. It's like, you have to have a coaching staff that decides like, we're going to play this way and it's going to be different, but it's going to be effective because nobody's going to be able to prepare for it. So, you know, Nolan Pratt and, and Ray Bennett and Bednar and, Parkila and Sean Allard, I mean, they have to all get together and figure out a way to teach these guys to play sort of out of the box. Um, I, I do think that's a, a very impressive thing about this team. I mean, you heard it a lot during the playoffs that, you know, such and such team just wasn't prepared for what the Avs brought. Um, yeah, I, I I like seeing an innovation like that. I, I hope to see teams try to emulate it. Um, you know, we saw a lot of recycled coaches hired so far this off season, but you, know, you see some young guys or guys that haven't been head coaches before, and, and you wonder, like, you know, is that guy going to have the freedom to maybe take some chances, like? Bednar did and put in a system that's that's not sort of the the stock NHL system. 
um, sort of the, what I talk about when, when good triumphs over evil. We want to see more scoring. We want to see exciting games. And I, um, you know, I, I just, I'd like to see more teams around the league try to play the way they have to. So, Earl, to that point, let me ask you this. Let me ask you both this question. We saw uh, Jacques Lemaire popularize the neutral zone trap in the mid-90s, which then led to the dawn of the dead puck era. Could we possibly be seeing uh, Jared Bednar now usher in a new style, this new style of play to revitalize the league to play in a similar way that the abs do to make the game exciting and involve the defense in a more creative way and allow his offense to do the things that they do. I would I mean, say, I, th- I, I think, so. yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think you have to, as a team decide that's the way you want to play. Like, you know, remember younger, faster after the, the terrible season. I mean, that was a conscious decision by Joe Sackick. Like, you know, we want to put a product on the ice the fans want to watch and we want to be successful. Um, you know, I know that Joe hated left-wing lock slash trap. Um, you know, that's just not something he wanted. Like, I don't think he'd ever hire a LaMare or, you know, honestly, like that, that even goes back to the Canadians in the mid seventies with Scotty Bowman. That's, that's kind of where the trap started. You know, it's, it's kind of been ingrained in the NHL for 40 years. Um, so, but you, you look at a, a team like Montreal going with Martin St. Louis, you know, maybe they go a little bit out of the box because they've got the freedom. Like they're not expected to be anything more than they were this year, which wasn't anything. So they have the freedom to start building a team that can be fast and, and play a little bit different. And, you know, you see it a little bit out of Rod Brindamore, uh, you know, I kind of see a little bit out of it, out of Andrew Brunette, which will go away with hiring 100 hockey man Paul Reese. Um, but it's like, you know, you, you see teams that they kind of look at that way of playing as the next generation. Um, and you just hope that you know, the, the teams that do decide to take the chance and play that way are more successful than the teams that you know, hire the retreads and play your basic one two two and a, and a trap when possible. I mean, like I said, I hope so. We'll see. Um, the draft will be another test because you always hear like so-and-so just won the cup. You know, they're looking for this, blah, blah, blah. And maybe it's just a media narrative, but um, we'll see if it comes up. But I just think Bednar's style is going to be really tough to emulate because A, you need that kind of talent and B, you have to commit to it. It's like even just five years ago, you'd have the token one offensive defenseman, the guy that runs your power play, but he only plays like 18 minutes and you really can't trust him to do anything. Sort of like Barry, right? But, um, you know, it's a full commitment up and down. I mean, it's funny when they even ask, you know, oh, wow, you know, Gerard has the green light to jump up. It's like McDermott has the green light. Like he literally <laughs> wants every single defenseman jumping into the play. It doesn't matter who they are. And maybe the ones that are less skilled need to pick their spots. But it's not about just, oh, this is the offensive guy. 
maybe we trust him to do it. It's a full up and down way he wants to play. The defense is involved in the offense. The forwards have to be smart about back checking and forward checking and things like that. So I just don't think the league's quite ready for that. And I know it's a copycat league and everyone's going to be looking at it, but it really does take such a new way of thinking that I don't, I don't even know if they're really going to quite get the credit for it, but we'll see. It'll probably inch that way. Like sometimes you hear coaches like Boudreaux and, and some of the others that m- more appreciate offense that they've talked about it. Like you need, you need your guys in the play. You need the defense to contribute, but it's a bridge from there to, like I said, where you're having Manson and McDermott and anybody on the blue line jumping into the play. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, that's one reason I wanted the Canes to have a little more success than they did. And you know, New York does play a little bit like that. Like Alon is a, he's a pretty offensive-minded coach. Um, so that was that was kind of a, you know, head ahead of that. But you know, the Canes really do play a five-man attack, like, and um, they're they're probably the most obvious example. So it's just, you know, I mean, people hate change in this league, so it's going to take one. Yeah, it's a copycat league, but it's also very ingrained in old school mentalities. and. Right, but if the Avs win three cups in a row, people are going to be like, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't see that we have a choice, but we got to play like that now. (laughs) Yeah. What is cool? What what does Kale say then? This is now Dynasty versus versus try to keep up history or (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you gotta you gotta invest in getting those players you gotta invest in playing them that's tough I mean I really feel like it took the Avs five years to really I don't think they rebuilt quote unquote and I don't think they rebuilt because they bottomed out but I feel like once they started winning you can identify what you need or where you're trying to get to before that you're just trying to get players you're trying to get talent assets you really don't have you're trying to get rid of guys that aren't helping yeah (laughs) but I really don't and that's the that's the toughest part for most teams is like geez we'd love to play like the ass but we have these big stupid defensemen that we have under contract (laughs) for the next five years so what are we gonna do Yeah, but it's like, I think once the Avs started winning, they saw the path. Like, And this very much was Bednar's philosophy. I think it is what helped him get hired. It's what he sold. But they had no idea that they'd have the, the kind of talent. I mean, they just, they just had EJ and Barry when he was hired. Like, they didn't even have Gerard. So... If he's thinking, boy, it'd be nice to play this way with the deal jumping up, and then you look at who they had, it's like, really? Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, watching the Canadians after San Luis take over, like, you know, they're asking David Savard to jump into the play and things like that. It's, you know, it's pretty funny. Um, but, I, you know, you also look at, you know, what, what JB did with Jack Johnson this year. Like, Jack Johnson was not known for jumping up into the play whatsoever. 
um, at this at this point in his career. I mean, early in his career, fine. Um, but it's like he took guys like Jack Johnson and were able to, you know, get them to play the system. Like you don't need, you know, you don't need to have McCarr, Byram, and, and Taves, and, and Sam um, to make this work. You, you need them to make it work really well. Um, but it's just, you know, it's the commitment, like you said, of we're going to play this way and this is who we have and, and we're going to do this. And, you know, if guys can't hack it, we'll get rid of them and replace them with guys that can. And he had Wierenski when he won the, the Calder Cup in the HL. So maybe that was some validation that this could work with young guys, talented guys that can move the puck. But I really truly feel like until they got Gerard and saw what he could do and that he could play as a real defenseman, like I really do believe he was like the first step into the abs to getting to where they are now because he really helped them make the playoffs that first year. He proved that he could be um, on the ice in all situations, lots of minutes, five on five, but he could move the puck. He could play that way, play fast, break the puck out, things like that. So they just built on that. So I do think Benner like had the idea before then, but until you're executing, until you see that it's starting to work, and then you can go out and get the that help facilitate that because you can have the vision all you want, but if it's not working, you're not going to continue on that path. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be a full organizational commitment, too. It, it's not enough. Like, you, you couldn't take Jared Bednar and put him in Philadelphia and have this work. You know, it's like you I need really the GM to be on the same page. What would have happened if he went to Philly before they started getting rid of everybody? Like, what he could have done with those those players? They, I mean, if they'd gotten them there before Chuck Fletcher, then maybe there could have been a chance. But yeah, but I agree. Your your GM, your all your management, your ownership needs to be on the same page too. And that probably was the biggest thing is when Wall left, there wasn't that kind of conflicting voice. Not to say I think everything he wanted was bad, but I just think it let Sackick have his plan, his vision, do things his way. They targeted the players. They started doing less, like, old stop gaps and you know it was much more cohesive more use of analytics i mean let's be honest the whole mcdermott thing is still just mind-boggling but hey it didn't matter <laughs> he gets to enjoy the cup he sure is <laughs> um you know <laughs> But, um, that's the first time I saw that clip. Might have been 16 candles when Long Duck Dong's girlfriend <laughs> presses the bar over and drops on the face. But, I mean, like you said, you know, even McDermott can jump in the play. He did. When he plays defense, he honestly does. Yeah, and he tries to break the puck out. It's not great, but it's, you know, you can tell that's what he was told to do, and, you know, he sees the guy he's supposed to hit. Yeah, like a lot of guys improved. You know, Obey Kubel, Benner talked a lot about how he, you know, starting to do a lot of the things that 
that the Avs like that kind of like beat some of the bad stuff from Philly out of him. <laughs> um, so yeah, to yeah. that extent, it is exciting that you know they have the right coach, the right situation. I have a lot of good pieces that are still going to be around, and hopefully they can identify some new guys to bring in and keep the party going. So this conversation kind of, uh, I, I caught in passing on on the Discord about uh, the 96 team uh, being, would, would, uh, being one that would, if it were to go head-to-head with the 01 team, it would just be, hands down, a victory for the 96 team. So I thought about. (laughs) (laughs) So I I thought about I thought about this, and I think there are some parallels over the last twenty one years that kind of follow a similar blueprint to the ninety six victory. Aside, of course, relocation, and we we had the oh nine draft with Duchesne and O'Reilly and Barry, and now in this final. After all those guys got traded for key pieces, we have a championship here. Compared to you know the '96 team, where you had guys like Matt Sundin and Wendell Clark and Owen Nolan and all those picks they had back then that they traded away for those players that became such a big oh in that one Eric Lindros guy whatever he whatever you know <laughs> that was, was important so. <laughs> I kind of think of it is, is this kind of like a similar in a similar way where they had those high end picks that they, tr- they cashed in on for great returns to build a championship winner that's built to be a contender for a long time. Do you think that we're seeing the same situation play out with this team? Although it's hard to kind of compare the two equally since that was a pre-cap era this is of course the salary cap era and you gotta worry about your money situation and but in terms of the talent do you feel that it's equitable to draw that parallel i think so i mean i'll just say (laughs) i really can't compare because i didn't wasn't intimately involved back then but um it does feel like this group should have sort of that similar kind of run. And it is interesting. I think there is parallel between like the first team finally achieving it. And this could be the start of something. And it is such a big deal when all these guys win it for the first time, right? It puts them in a different category, Um, you know, an achievement for their career and everything. And, um, so I don't know what it'll be like, you know, next year or the following years, because you're going to want it again, but I don't think you just have that desperate anxiety about like, oh my God, is this ever going to happen? So that's how I feel it compares, but I can't tell you like person to person. So Earl can take that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think there, there's some parallels and, and obviously that was a different era. So, you know, strategically, you built your team different, you know, instead of uh, a Kale McCarr, you had an Adam foot. Um, you know, you can make some parallels between Joe and Horsburgh, you know, to maybe Mac and Nico. Um, 
but it's just you know what they what Pierre Lacroix built um, in Quebec and finally moved to to Denver. Um, it was a very dangerous three lines worth of scoring and a defense that in that era's way um, did a lot of the same things that that say the Avs defense does now. Like they're very complementary. Like they you know, they get involved. Um, and how the team plays rather than being more passive. So, you know, I think there are those parallels, but you look at the ages of, you know, the core players of the 96 team versus the ages of the core players now, and, it, you know, it is very similar. So I think that's very hopeful, you know, that you'll be able to keep a, a team together. You know, it's hard to say, like, you know, like 96 to, Let's say 03 was basically their stretch. You know, that's a you know, that's that's a, a long time in hockey years. So are they gonna be set up for seven years worth of success? You know, you know, that'd be awesome. But it, you know, that's not something you count on in the cap here. But you know, if they can take the next five years and be super competitive. And I mean, you never know what happens from there. Like, you know, they could draft a guy next year in the fourth round. And, you know, he turns out to be hated. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That'd be they could get a hater this year. That's true. They could. Right. A, a real they, one. <laughs> right. But I, just, you I, know, I, like not everybody on their team was, you know, a first round pick. You know, it's like, yeah, Tange was, but, you know, Hayduke wasn't. Um, so... You know, you, you kind of count on falling ass backwards into a little luck if you want to extend your window. Um, For so me, we'll see. The- but it, I, I think they have. I, I think they have um, the fiscal responsibility with the cap so far that you know they're they're not going to be in trouble. It's not a Tampa situation where they're going to have to have like dead contracts getting them LTR IR money just to be competitive. I mean, you know. They they manage their cap very well while still building a very competitive team. I mean, yeah, we'll see how it starts this offseason, but I think I don't think winning a cup means that you're going to throw more money at getting another one, right? Like your your methods to get here were validated. So they were never that aggressive to get here. So I don't think they're going to be thinking of trying to do LTIR or giving term. I mean, I don't really right. think they're going to give, except for maybe Nuke, I don't really think anybody's going to get term. And, you know, we appreciate that they, they're they not stuck with these old guys and, you know, the ones that we're going to have to wonder about, what are they going to be able to do in six, seven years are like Landy and McKinnon, and that's okay. But there won't be like the secondary guys around that long. For me, the big question is when Miko's up in three years, I think that's when you're going to either have to decide like how much are you going to chase this era or is it going to be time to kind of turn the page? So we'll see. Yeah. And I think one of the great things about how this team is built is the one Avenue they really haven't taken advantage of is external UFAs. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of people love the idea of you know, signing Claude Giroux or someone like that. And that's just, 
absolutely the last thing that would be in character for them. Um, Unless they can get somebody, him or Malkin to take like one, two, maybe three. Or I think three. Yeah, like, if you get a Solani or Korea deal, then yeah, then that, sure. that might work. But, yeah, but I, giving these guys like six, seven years, no way. Right, you're you're not signing like David Savard type contracts and, and just killing yourself for years. Um, My one concern would be they don't really have the ass that they went and got a lot of these players like Berkey and. Taze. They don't have the second throw around anymore. They don't have a second till 2025. And there is time value money in the NHL. Like, no GM really cares about 2025 sick right now. So, you know, what, what are they going to be able to do? Because they did a good job. That's how they did it. They stayed away from UFA, but then they had to kind of trade for these guys that didn't have enormous contracts. So, what are they going to is pretty limited now. So may- maybe it is like preying on guys like Mal- somebody like a Malkin will come in for cheap. I don't know. So that that is another big question that, that we'll see answered in this offseason. Uh, so let, let's have fun with this with this question. Uh, we've seen we've seen all the sights and sounds of the parades. Uh, uh, Jackie, you and I were fortunate to be there at the parade in different spots and seeing a couple of different things. Uh, so, and of course, social media has given us a different viewpoint for celebrations that have gone on since the victory. Uh, so out of everything that you've kind of been able to see publicly, uh, what has been your favorite celebratory image out of this uh, Stanley Cup uh, victory thus far? Probably anything with Byram. <laughs> yeah, Byram and the cop. <laughs> That's probably not my favorite. It's a funny story. I guess I like that image of him like looking up, trying to get beer poured on him. It was pretty good, <laughs> but just everything. Like I saw him on the parade float, already starting to like, you know, just bring the energy. It was cool that he didn't take a back seat. Is like you know, one of the rookies and he should celebrate big. They all should, but he was such a big part of it. And it was cool. That he kind of <laughs> let his person at the LDO like that. And, you know, alcohol helps, <laughs> but it's just fun watching him have fun like that. I think two of my favorite moments involved Jared Bednar. One of them was a clip where someone from the crowd throws Bednar, a tall boy. And like everyone else is like, like diving out of the way, he just like casually grabs it out of the air, opens it, chugs it, and throws it back in the crowd. Um, but also his, <laughs> his speech on the podium, um, yeah, all the speeches and that was incredible because, like, you know, he has that Kendall reputation that is totally <laughs> unwarranted, completely wooden, devoid of personality, all that. Um, and I, I just, I think it was great to see during the parade and in his speech, you know, show that side of him that, that yes, he's a very serious person and very focused on what goes on with the team during the season. And, and that's 99% of what we see, you know, but you know, here he is after reaching his goal, lifetime goal, um, showing some emotion and, and, you know, I, I just think it, it, it personalizes him a little bit. And I, I thought that was really great. 
Um, yeah, I thought all the speeches were great. If anybody hasn't listened to it, I I recommend it. Like, it's hilarious, heartfelt, joyful, everything. And and yeah, alcohol definitely aided Bednar's speech there, but um, <laughs> but he was he was so emotional. He was so just you could just feel it. Like you said, he was so grateful they gave him a chance, and he was so proud of everybody. And you just really felt that you were just like. You know, he just cares so deeply. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll agree with uh, Bender's speech. That was very, it was very moving and a stark departure from his persona that he's shown publicly with his post game and his pregame availabilities and media stuff he had done in the past even my own personal interactions i've had through meet the team functions uh uh i never would have guessed that he you know to see that as part of his you know personality so to, to for him to just have you know that uh air of openness and yes of course some Alcohol had to have played a factor in this at some point. Uh, or many points, who knows? Uh, <laughs> that was really, really neat to see and how much he showed not just his dedication and his passion, but just an, a level of love and care for the game, his players, his staff, the fans, uh, Joe, the situation he found himself in, his the families he mentioned all the you know the spouses, the wives and girlfriends to make all of this possible for them, and it that was it, it really was a sight to behold, and you couldn't help but you feel something when you saw that. I I thought that was really neat. Uh, some really entertaining stuff I you know I saw along the parade route uh, were uh, uh, right around. Uh, uh, when the fire truck came with uh, uh, Lekkanen and Miko, Miko was also catching beers from the crowd too at this point. So to see that, and then at the end of the rally, I posted this picture on on our Twitter to see a fan get his head head shaved by Nicholas Obeku Bell. <laughs> now. For context, he did not shave his entire head. So oh. he only has like parts of his head shaved. <laughs> and he's got long hair. So it's just like a, all these, you know, flowing locks and then like this little bitty section of just like buzzed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all that stuff was fun and the parade was cool and it was neat to see them all let loose and. You know, it is kind of sad to think that they're all, like, going to be broken up. And they definitely deserve to go home, I mean, for sure. But, um, you know, kind of the last moment of them all together. And, and we know some guys will depart. But um, I'm looking forward to following the Cup when they do all, like, the hometown stuff. Everybody gets a day with the Cup. That should probably start pretty soon. Like, they don't have that much time to get it all in. So... Or when they get their rings, or when the cup is finally engraved. Like I'm looking forward to all that stuff. Like, um, 
you know, the biggest celebration is right now, but, you know, they're champions forever and, you know, we can love and appreciate this team forever. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to that too. And Jackie, you'll appreciate this. This happened right in front of where I was for the parade. It was, I was like, oh, that's Sam. Wait a minute. He's, he's wearing Nicholas Obey-Cabell's jersey. Why is he wearing his jersey? And then I didn't think of anything of it at the time. And then I went back through my camera roll. And I have pictures of Sam uh, pouring beer down a traffic cone that Obey-Cabell is holding to his face. Oh, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> and, and then he... Obey-Cabell turns it around and he's holding it up like it's the cup and all his beer is just showering down on him. <laughs> <laughs> and he puts the cup on his head, the cone on his head. Yeah, I hope he comes back. I thought he added something different to the team, both on ice and off ice. Didn't he pretend to trip and drop it too? <laughs> <laughs> That was also one of my favorite post-game moments. Is like not five minutes after receiving the cup, they've got a dent in it already. <laughs> oh, I know. He's a good sport about it too. I know his girlfriend gave him a lot of crap. <laughs> uh, we've been going at this for a little over four hours now. Uh, wow! But we've had a lot to share. It's been a worth every minute to you know go through the final and celebrate everything even talking about you know this fun stuff with the guys winning and the celebrations they've done uh you don't win the cup every week Vlad. you know you don't <laughs> take 21 years <laughs> in, in, a, in a strange way it's you know my first year as podcast host and yeah champions now yeah, we want to thank you keeping, it, keeping <laughs> it going. It was such a historic season to document, and um, we're glad that we got to see it through. And, you know, we'll still be around for some of the off-season important decisions and draft development camp. So, you know, there's still a lot more to get into. Yeah, it, it really was a great season, and it's going to – the unpublished pods – that we have, you know, on back order right now, I guess. Uh, they're going to be really interesting to release with hindsight to see all this stuff through the lens of a championship victory. And, and then kind of looking at more recent things like with the playoffs, we kind of look at these narratives that got busted with this Stanley Cup win about dreading the second round collapse. That's over with the talk about Bedner not being uh, good enough to win a championship, that's over with. And I'm, I, 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 I want to go back and listen to our pod, like maybe from after the first 10 games. Um, and, when, and they to see what, <laughs> when they were bad. When they were bad. Ford six. Uh, and you sort of see, you know, what the criticisms were and things, you know, see all that, how all that panned out with a, a good dose of hindsight. It's it's great to see all these narratives finally get 
you know, put in the dirt. So I guess to that point, let me ask both of you, which of these narratives that have now been busted, which are you most happy and re or relieved, take your pick, to see finally go away? I mean, I think the second round thing, just because it, you know, it's, it's, it's recent. It, it's very germane to this team. It's not something that's like an organiza organizational failure over several decades, like the development system. Um, you know, this was a hurdle. That's still a narrative, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this was a hurdle that they needed to overcome. Uh, and it's, you know, you, you just, you wonder, like, if they could have just gotten over it earlier, you know, were, were they ready to have success or, or did it take, like, going through those three second round exits to build the team mentality that they had this year to finally pull it off. Um, but I, you know, the, I, I think that's the one that I, I think is I'm most glad about because I, I think it pervaded a lot of the broadcast during the, the playoff when they were talking about um, the ads, you know, even after they, they beat the blues, um, there still was doubt in people's minds, like, well, you know, they usually exit the second round, so they're in uncharted territory here. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, so, I think for me, that's that's the one I, I'm I'm glad to be rid of. You know, I for me, I guess just so and so's not good enough. You know, Benner's not a good enough coach. You know it. It's going to be tough if you give McKinnon an eight-year deal, you know, to wonder, is is he good enough to get them there? Or Landy, you know, is he good enough as captain to get there? You know, the longer it drags on, the more you're going to ask that. Do you, do you need to make a change there? You know, those kind of questions, I think, won't come up anymore. I mean, there's always going to still be narratives and criticism or whatever, but... I think it's just so validating for all the people that got there to the cup. You know, everybody, they showed they were good enough. They could be part of it and put at least those narratives to bed because they did it. And, and I'll have to agree. Uh, I, I know, uh, and you know, i I made it very clear that the uh, the whole conversation about Kemper not being a good goalie has now finally successfully been put to rest. Uh, but I think the I think I agree with you, Earl, that the second round collapse is probably the one I'm happiest to see. You know, be put you know put to pasture because there was talk that you know the uh, the Avs are just Toronto West because they can't get out of the second round, and now they've done that. Well, hopefully, Toronto can't even get out of the first round. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Toronto can't even get out of the first round. That's... But yeah, no, I, I, I do think that's just. I, I, I think when the media sees a hurdle like that, that or a wall that a team keeps beating their head against, it, it's something that's really easy to to latch onto and, and uh, take in as a long term narrative. And the funny thing is Washington lost three times in the second round and then they won the cup. So it was like almost, it was 
a lot the same kind of process there, which is kind of funny how that worked out. Yeah, and the Caps had an epic celebration too after they won. So the Avs are just uh, trying to make sure theirs is epic in their own way. <laughs> which they're doing a great job. They um, sure are. Yeah, and it's 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 been so long since the Avs were this competitive that you just you you don't remember sort of the heartache that goes into winning a championship. Like I remember in two thousand one, like we had to deal with nineteen ninety nine and two thousand. And those were very painful. Um, you know, you didn't have that in 96 because the team had just moved there, but they did have a heartbreak kind of the, the year before when they choked against the Rangers in the first round as the Nordiques. Um, so, you know, it, it's easy to say as a fan, you know, especially for last year's team, let's say, like they're good enough. They're the president's trophy winners. Like they should be in the final and just like they split. It's easy. Um, but it's, I, I think as players, you kind of have to go through learning the hard way. And, and they did. So it's kind of a floodgate situation. I, I really think that, you know, it's not silly that even though we don't know, you know, maybe half the guys on the team next year, for sure, um, that they're starting out as cup favorites. As they should. Yeah, I remember those losses against ninety nine the stars in ninety nine and two thousand with that last second shot that went off the off the post there, and how tough those. No, we really were. don't need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it all worked out the following year. It did and just like just like with the loss to Vegas this past season. One year later, the Avs got it done, and. Yeah, and Vegas poisoned their team with Jack Eichel, and their coach is no longer around. So, <laughs> hey, <laughs> and their their path wasn't you know it it wasn't you know a a downhill run either because they had they started the season without a McKinnon. They had to wait for Darcy Kemper to acclimate to the to playing in Colorado. And then everybody started dropping off because of COVID. The season got paused. Then they go on a run where they have one overtime loss in the whole month of February. Nazem Kadri goes to the All-Star game with Kale McCarr. Yeah, it was an incredible season. It, it was a long ride. It started a long time ago. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot to appreciate and you know we'll start that right again in about what three months it, yeah <laughs> but I, one thing's for sure that is going to be a special night on opening night when that third banner goes to yeah. the Raptors that ball it's going to be a hot ticket I'm definitely looking forward to that <clears throat> And I moved seats this season to twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of disappointed that I'm not gonna be at my cup winning seat now, but hey, maybe this next seat will be just as good. 
so yeah, I have your your Colorado Avalanche are Stanley Cup champions. So what more needs to be said about the 2021-22 season? They found a way. They found a way. Perfect. They did. Uh, so we're going to probably... Uh, we're probably going to have another show here in a little while when... Because we've got the draft coming up here in a few days. At As of the time of this recording. I believe. Isn't that right, Jackie? Yeah, on the 7th. And then off-season begins shortly after that. So some of the question marks on the roster will we'll know more about by then, one would expect. So uh, before we close the book on a, a literal banner season, well, I guess three banners, since three banners are going to be going up, uh, any final thoughts? Any last words? Anything that you two want to share before? I don't really. No, I think I think we summed it all up pretty good. Um, I was glad to share it with you all. I'm glad to share it with our listeners. Um, thank you everybody for continuing to support BR to to interact with us on Twitter, to read our articles. I do have a draft article coming out, which will probably be out by the time you listen to this. So check that out. Um, if you don't know, you can find me on my high hockey. I do right over there. And yeah, it's, it's one thing to enjoy this and to celebrate. It's, it's another thing to share it with the community. So I think we all do need to take out time and to, Appreciate one another as much as this team and this win. And go abs. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sort of the perspective I'm going to have on this season. You know, two weeks, two months, two years from now. I, it, it's, it's fun to watch a, a championship age like this. And along with Jackie. Thank everyone for listening throughout the season and go laps. And I would just like to, to say that uh, I could not have asked for a more successful first season as host of this podcast. Uh, I didn't come into this with championship aspirations. I just wanted to do well enough to make sure that the podcast just didn't implode with me taking it over after, uh, after Steph. So, and a big part, a big, uh, a big, re two big reasons for that are the, you know, the two people who I record with, Earl and Jackie. Thank you very much for well, all your you. support. And thank you for stepping in. And all your patience with the uh, 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 extended pauses in release of the episodes this season. Uh, I don't know if that's the winning formula. Maybe I need to do that next season, and we we're right back here in a year talking about another cup championship. <laughs> but what whatever whatever it took to get, put on a good show, I hope 
all of them were were worth the weights that the, we brought you in, enti- you know, an entertaining product. And uh, I'm very grateful for both of you for uh, helping me out with my first run at this. And it, you know, cliche as it is, you know, we we did this together. I certainly couldn't have done it without uh, your knowledge and your expertise and your support. Say the same back to you, Vlad. Yes. Without you, it doesn't exist. Exactly. There were some hard lessons to learn, and I'm still learning a few things, and I'm hoping that the upcoming season we'll be able to do some you know, do some more cool stuff, maybe some new stuff, if we can figure out what that might look like. But yeah, uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our supporters. Uh, thank you to our amazing community who uh, were very, uh, and your feedback for what we do. Uh, thank you for welcoming me as the, as the host. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, that's, that's where I am at. So thank you very much, everybody, our listeners, Earl, Jackie, what a season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so congratulations to the Colorado Avalanche. You are Stanley Cup champions once again. Uh, and congratulations to both you and you, you, you Earl, you Jackie for our own championship run. Until you hear our voices next time, thank you for listening. Thank you again for your support. The Avs found a way. Enjoy the Stanley Cup championship, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>